South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. And a beautiful Sunday morning to you out there. This is the coolest, nicest Sunday morning that uh, we've experienced in quite some time. And uh, I'd like to say, I'll, I'll, I'll claim, although it's totally a joke, that uh, this, this cool air is what we brought back from Colorado when we came back the middle of last week. But... Oh, man, however it got here, it is such a relief. Now we just need some rain to go along with it to get some water back in the rivers and the creeks and the streams and back into our aquifers, and hopefully that'll be along uh, one day before too long. It just doesn't look real good for the next couple of weeks. We're here to talk gardening until 11 o'clock this morning, at which point Dr. Kirby comes in and we talk pet health for an hour. Looks like we've got John and David and Clint ready to talk, and I hate to keep people waiting. I've got plenty of things to talk about, but I'd rather talk with you. So let's get started with John. Good morning, John. Good morning, Bob. How are you today? Uh, It is a beautiful morning out there. I love it when you have to put on long sleeves for a little while in the morning and then get to take them off by the middle of the day. So my idea of a close to perfect day if we just get some rain along with it. Yes, sir. Hey, uh, had three volunteer tomato plants come up in a half whiskey barrel. Okay. Uh, all were all three were doing reasonably well, but literally overnight, two of the three, the top third of the leaves uh, turned brown and kind of curled up. Any ideas to why that might might have happened? Um, and this was just throughout the plant, but it only happened on the top portion of the plant, right? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, that tells us it wasn't root rot of any sort, and. Um, uh, it wasn't, you know, fungal diseases like early blight. So about the only thing that is really left is something physical. Either, you know, either the plants just got a little too dry and it only takes one day for that to happen. Um, there's no sign of any breakage on the stems or anything like that. Nowhere any caterpillars have chewed on it or any such thing. Not that, it, no, not that uh, I can see. And this happened how many days ago? Uh, three or four. All right. And the lower part of the plant still looks good? It, it does. Okay. You know, strange things are happening in the vegetable garden this year. This is the worst year for tomatoes I've had in the past 30 years or so. And I'm going to tell you, it just has something to do with the combination of drought and these suddenly intensely hot days we're getting and for whatever reason um it just literally fried the top portion of the plants it doesn't sound like spider mites it like i say it doesn't sound like any disease but every now and then plants have what we call a compensation point and that is simply how much energy it takes to stay alive and then anything they have left over above and beyond that they can put into growth and flowering and making fruit every now and then stressful weather situations or other situations will raise that compensation point so high that the plant says i just can't support all this foliage that's why we see leaf drop and a lot of things and it's unusual for it happened to happen to tomatoes but we still had some intense sunlight granted it wasn't quite like it was in july and august and the fact that the rest of the plant is going on and growing tells me it was just a temporary situation, 
by something that happened in the environment. So keep an eye on, you know, the part of the plant that's still healthy. It's it's cooling off even more. Keep up the same thing you're doing, uh, you know, thorough deep watering when you water. And you should, the rest of the plant should continue to grow. If the weather will stay warm for a little while, you have a good chance for some production. But I certainly don't think it was anything you did or didn't do. It doesn't sound like insects or disease. So all that leaves is weird environmental factors. And uh, uh, it's, it's highly unusual, but it's not unheard of. So that's the best explanation I can suggest at this point. Okay, Bob, my other question is, can you recommend a variety of broccoli and cauliflower? Um, Cauliflower, they have never come up with anything better than the old snow crown, if you're looking for just a good white cauliflower. Now, there are purple cauliflowers out there. There is an orange one called cheddar. Uh, There are a bunch of different ones, but um, just for the old standard white, uh, you know, snow crown or snow crop, either one of those are always going to be dependable varieties. Broccoli, I, I, they've never come up with anything better than green comet, but unfortunately the green comet seed isn't available anymore. If you find an old package somewhere, seed will keep for years, but green comet, in my opinion, is still um, the best one they've ever had. It's been replaced by one that's pretty good, that's called Green Magic. There's another old variety out there called Waltham, W-A-L-T-H-A-M. And uh, those are going to give you lots of broccoli. The, uh, the, the thing that I look for in a home garden broccoli is a variety that makes a nice big head. And then after you harvest and enjoy that, it continues to make little smaller heads off to the sides for weeks and weeks and weeks afterwards. The seed producers, they're growing for the big boys. They're growing, you know, 10 acres instead of 10 plants. And what your big producer wants is a broccoli plant that puts one great big head on, and then they can pull the plant up and plant another one. They are not worried about cutting off the smaller side heads. And that's why we have such a limited choice in good new home broccoli varieties. They're all looking for, you know, what the commercial guys want. It's one and only one big head. So uh, I think the two varieties you're going to find that I would choose out there are going to be, uh, um, like I say, uh, Waltham and Green Magic. You may see one called Pac-Man, P-A-C-K-M-A-N. Not bad, but again, given the choice, probably probably for the ones you're likely to find, Green Magic or Waltham are going to be my two first choices. Very good. Bob, thank you so much. You have a great day. And you keep me posted on those tomatoes. I'd really like to hear how they do. That's a real unusual situation, but this has been a really unusual year, and I'd like to hear back from you, John. Yes, sir. Uh, I again, appreciate have a great day, Bob. You too. Thank you. Next in line is David. Good morning, David. Morning, Bob. Good morning. Things. We got a place up in Utopia, and on that mm-hmm. property, there is what I'm going to call a real unusual crepe myrtle. Uh, two things make it unusual. It was probably planted in the late 60s, early 70s, when that first opened up as not a subdivision, but when they started selling <laughs> lots up there. Right. And what first thing is, it's perfectly shaped like a Christmas tree. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's almost not a branch out of place. And I've never seen that with, with the crepe myrtles we've planted before. Right. The second thing is, after that seven inches of rain that we got, 
it busted out blooming like I had never seen since we got the property in 2005. Mm-hmm. And the, the buds on it were kind of a lavender, purplish, brilliant color. But that's not so unusual. But what we found unusual is in the middle of almost every one of those and on the end of that little branch, there was a white, uh, several white blooms. Uh-huh. And in those white blooms were little yellow, I don't know what you call them, look like a little yellow antenna coming out of them. Yeah, they're, that's called the polenia. Yeah, that's... Okay. What you've got is is simply one of the older crepe myrtle varieties out there. We used there's one called watermelon red. They They didn't have very imaginative names. And the plant breeders decided that people wanted intense, more intense colors, and they wanted plants that bloomed over a longer period of time. Uh, my suspicion is this one probably came into bloom late June, early July, and uh, bloomed reasonably well, you know, for the rest of the summer. Would that be correct? Well, not really. Uh, right after that seven-inch rain, or seven inches of rain over a couple I guess a couple of days, uh-huh. it held the blooms, and then all of a sudden, I don't know, they only stayed that brilliant for about a week and a half, maybe two weeks. Right. And then they just kind of disappeared. Yeah, and were probably replaced by seed heads. That's very typical of the older varieties. The uh, work in hybridizing, Carl Whitcomb did up in Oklahoma. They did over at Georgia State University. They brought us crepe myrtle varieties that start blooming in April, uh, maybe even the end of March, that the flowers last for two or three weeks if the weather's not too intense. And they pretty much, it seems like they're never without flowers for the whole summer. So you've got, you know, one of the originals. It's just, it's kind of like driving a car from the 50s. (laughs) They still run, but they're sure not as comfortable and nice as what you can buy if you've got the money today. So, um... Uh, and and as you have certainly observed, they're more drought tolerant. They're more uh, resilient, uh, shall we say? And I'm sure you know back then people planted things a little bit more carefully. It's probably planted with the root ball at the proper depth. So I, you've just got if we could hang a sign on there that said antique, you've got an antique crate myrtle just like an antique car. But uh, it's a good plant. It's probably going to grow for a hundred years. It's just, you know, not the newest and latest and finest, which is why you're not seeing very many of them around because uh, um, they weren't nearly as common back then. And today, everybody's looking for that, you know, that really intense blood red one like dynamite or the little tiny one that doesn't grow more than three feet tall called New Orleans. So uh, you've just got a you've just got a great heritage crepe myrtle, so to speak, an old variety that's just not widely grown anymore. How do we uh, clone that? My wife wants to get get some more growing somewhere. Okay. Well, the little stems that had the flowers on them are not what you want to choose. But the little branches that, you know, were leafed out all the way to the end, uh, in about another three or four weeks after the uh, after the leaves fall off the crepe myrtle, you can take a bunch of cuttings. You want to keep cuttings about four to six inches long. Just take them from the tips of the branches. I would soak them for about 30 minutes in a solution, uh, maybe some garret juice diluted properly with a little bit of extra liquid seaweed added. Soak them for about 30 minutes or so. And then take a pot that drains or a tray that drains 
veins, fill it with that white volcanic material called perlite, P-E-R-L-I-T-E, not the pearl light that uh, other people use for other purposes. But um, And you can put lots of cuttings in a, you know, say an 8-inch pot, you could probably put 40 or 50 crepe myrtle cuttings in there. Keep them moist, keep them bright, uh, protect them from a hard freeze, but, you know, cool weather in the 40s and 50s, uh, not going to bother them at all. Expect that it's going to take about 8 to 10 weeks. Those cuttings will root. I probably would leave them in the perlite until spring when they start putting on leaves. At that point, you can take them out, pot them up individually, grow them to whatever size you like, and plant more, give to your friends, share with anybody that's interested. And uh, you've just got one of the, you know, we talk about heirloom seeds all the time for vegetables and things like that. You just have an heirloom crepe myrtle. And uh, there are no patents, no anything like that. You can produce as many plants as you want. You can sell them. You can give them away. You can do whatever uh, whatever David wants to do with them. Oh, cool. Okay, and the second thing, excuse me, In uh, near the end of June, well, mid-June, we were up in Oregon, and our mm-hmm. flight out of Portland got canceled, so we had to go down to Eugene. <laughs> About midway we started seeing these fields that had just been uh, mowed. Thousands and thousands and thousands of acres. They had those fields on hills. Uh, farmers around here wouldn't even think about planting. Uh-huh. And I'm thinking, man, look at those great big hay bales out there. There was thousands of those, <laughs> and they were piled up like uh, roughly the size of an 18-wheeler tractor. Uh huh. I said, boy, this is a great hay growing area. Well, when we got to Eugene, <laughs> the guy that checked the rent cars, we, we asked him about it. And, and he started laughing. Fields, yeah, those fields are used to produce seed, Bermuda grass seed, you name it. That's, huh. They were all seed fields. Uh-huh. And we had just missed the harvest. And what those bales were, they're going to ship those to China for cow feed. Oh, yeah. Cows yeah. Yeah. I was amazed at how many thousands of acres there were that were cultivated for this for these uh, seeds. I thought you were I thought you were going to tell me it was marijuana because they've grown an awful lot of that out there too. (laughs) Yeah, and it's 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 another one of those you know controversial things in some ways. Uh, I don't think it's it's so bad because you know again it is a big seed production area. They've just got an ideal growing situation up there. Doesn't get especially in the coastal areas from Portland on down to Eugene. It rarely ever freezes. It rarely ever gets really hot. Hot. It rains regularly. It's an ideal production thing. The thing that some of us hate to see is that it's, in effect, one more way that China is stealing our water because it does take, and, and up there it's probably going to be mostly rainwater. But you get down toward California and you've got areas where they are using huge amounts of a very limited water supply on fields owned by China to produce hay simply to take back and feed their cows. And sadly, in truth, they're taking a lot of the water away from us. 
and a lot of people just don't think that's right. Now, I try to avoid getting too political on the show, so I simply bring this up as a matter of interest. But there is a huge amount of hay grown to the West Coast that ships directly to China. It's just the one thing that Oregon is doing right is there, or these these farmers are doing right, is that they're growing from growing the plants for seed production, which is good for all of us. And then they're basically, in this case, the hay is a byproduct rather than a primary product. And uh, I'd rather see it going east than west, but um, it's not my field. And in this country, we have the freedom to do what we want to do. So you've just uh, you brought up a real interesting point, and you got to see a real interesting phenomenon, one of the best since, uh, I guess, the full eclipse, which you could see from Eugene, Oregon, a couple of years ago. I was actually in, uh, in Portland for a nurseryman's meeting, and kind of by accident got to first see my near full solar eclipse. I didn't want to take the fight the traffic to drive to Eugene and see a hundred percent. But anyway, it's a pretty part of the world out there. It's got its own share of problems right now, but uh it's uh it's a beautiful part of the country and they're doing some good things out there. Yeah, their irrigation, a lot of them had these impulse sprinklers that were like fire monitors. Huge. Oh yeah. 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 And see that's that's okay. a bad thing. The the modern irrigation system uh, instead of spraying the water up in the air where it evaporates, they have a the long run, the, the big irrigation systems on wheels, and they have tubes that hang down from that to within about right. six inches of the ground. Kind of irrigation that a lot of people, including those guys, are using. Fortunately, they don't have to do it as often as we do here in Texas, but you're losing up to 40% of your water to evaporation. The modern, better systems, you're losing maybe 4% of your water to evaporation. So, yeah, it's it's impressive to see, but environmentally, mm, not the way it ought to be done. Agreed, agreed. You see a lot of those, uh, oh, those circular irrigation systems. Well, I'm on my way to uh, Utopia now and up around Honda, north of Hondo or west of Hondo, you see a lot of those in the cotton fields. Oh, yeah. Everything yeah. else. Well, I'm it's called, p- called pivot. pivot irrigation is what it's called. And, uh, oh, um, okay. Anyway, well, David, I appreciate the call and uh, I'm glad you enjoyed seeing some fun stuff up there. We did. Thank you, Bob. You're sure welcome. Thank you, sir. Work. Yeah, I'll do my best. <laughs> Goodbye. All right, uh, hang on just a minute, Clint. I need to get a break in here, and I get to talk about the Cedar Eater of Texas. What a pleasure that is. It's just, you know, such a great company. Been doing such great work for many years, helping those of us that live and work and ranch in the hill country, just offering a great alternative to getting rid of that second-growth cedar that just saps the life out of our land you know, catches the rainwater, the first half inch of rainwater that falls on a cedar patch, never makes it to the ground, gets absorbed by the leaves of the trees, and they're so dense you can't get your native grasses and wildflowers to grow underneath them. Cedar Eater has a machine that cuts that cedar off at ground level, and which kills the tree, by the way, and uh, and it won't re-sprout. And then the the same machine grinds it into a nice even mulch. There's no burning. There's no bulldozing. There's no blading the land. It's just a good way to get rid of the cedar and get some good mulch in return. They've been doing this for years. They can do acres and acres in a single day. And if your cedar's crowded up against your oaks and elms and escarpment cherries, things you want to save, well, they just send in a hand-clearing crew. They cut those cedars, drag them out in the open, 
and literally in a second that machine turns that material into a mulch as well. It's called the Cedar Eater. They have other services with other machines, but boy, if you've got cedar on your land and you're looking for the environmentally friendly, effective way to get rid of it, you need to remember this number. It's 210-745-2743, 210-745-2743 for the Cedar Eater of Texas. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. Next three callers are going to be Clint and Jan and Brenda, and Clint is up first. Good morning, Clint. Good morning. How are you doing? Well, one more day in a rain that didn't come. So, you know, here we are in South Texas, but it's a beautiful morning out there, that's for sure. I heard stories about rain, but it's been so long, I wouldn't know, know if I saw it anymore. Well, I saw pictures of it a while back, and there was a lot of it coming down over on the East Coast. But <laughs> it's, uh, I don't know. its uh, It'll come. My old friend Alton Grimm used to always say, every day we're one day closer to the next good rain. But, man, I'm ready for it to be here. Those My cows are saying, hey, where's that green grass? Where Where's that all that fall stuff we usually get? And I just shrug my shoulders and go buy another $125 bale of hay. Ouch. Yeah. I got a uh, celebrity uh, tomato plant. Uh, get kind of a weak-looking bud, but other than that, uh, any chance that's going to produce? Depends on what the weather does. You know, if it stays where we're not getting above the middle 80s, where we're having nights that are cool but not too cool celebrity is a big fruited tomato so once those nights really consistently get down toward the 50s it's not going to set a lot more fruit but uh in the meantime uh, typically october we get some of our best uh, tomatoes of the year so this is just a weird year if the weather evens out a little bit you've got a chance to set some more fruit and I, you know, I've even picked ripe tomatoes on Christmas Day, so we'll keep our fingers crossed. Uh, I won't yank it, then I give it another shot. I would. Um, I was thinking about picking up a truckload of uh, compost and knocking it around all my fruit trees and stuff, but being as dry and hard as the ground is and no moisture in it, is that neat point, or will it still get some benefit? Oh, you'll get a ton of benefit out of it, especially uh, when you water uh, those fruit trees, because uh, that compost, you know, I'll give you an example. This has been several years back, but I was going to plant a bunch of new fruit trees. It was the end of the summer, and my soil was so hard. If I was going to dig, I had to use an iron bar. A shovel wouldn't even break the surface, and I knew I was probably going to get my fruit trees in January, so I got that load of compost. Everywhere I was going to put a tree, I dumped about half a wheelbarrow of compost in that spot, made a little depression in the top, and it wasn't often, maybe every two three weeks i'd be able to get out there and you know put a little water in it it was a dry fall but come january i could literally dig the soil underneath that compost with a spoon it was so soft and so loose so putting your compost on even in the drought is definitely going to help the soil underneath and if you can just periodically put a little water on there as well it's i i, I think it's probably better than fertilizer at this point I like to put down a little fertilizer first and put my compost on top of it. But, man, if you've got the time and the money to spend on some compost, uh, this is an absolutely wonderful time of year to do it. Okay, so it, just giving some water, and even as dry as it is out here, I'll still get some benefit? 
Oh, absolutely. And in the garden proper, you just spread it around um, as, as deeply as you can. An inch, inch and a half would be ideal. Um, around your fruit trees and things like that. Don't put it right up against the trunk, but kind of make that big old bowl around it, uh, you know, a couple of feet out from the trunk all the way around, and you'll probably have the prettiest foliage. You're not going to see a lot of change this fall, but next spring you'll see some of the best foliage and best growth you've seen in years. I'll have to give that a shot. What do you think about uh, spreading compost out with a big area with those three-point cone spreaders? Do you think that would be worthwhile? It just comes down to money. There is no such thing as, uh, you know, as long as you're getting good, clean compost, no pickler am uh, manure in there, but uh, uh, it's the absolute best thing you can do for your land. But, my God, when I look at the price of compost these days and how much these companies are charging to deliver it, uh, <laughs> it's kind of like that rancher that uh, run $20 million in, his, in the lottery, and one of his neighbors asked him what he was going to do with it, and he thought a second and said, well, I guess I'll just go on ranching until it's gone. <laughs> Unfortunately, there's, there's you know, some truth in that, but uh, if it's in the budget, uh, it, and it's, it's a good investment, it's one of the best things you could ever do for your land. Um, but uh, there's just it's it's labor intensive and it's expensive. But again, uh, everything worthwhile in this world seems to cost a little bit more and take a little more effort these days. But compost over a garden, compost over a field, uh, there's nothing better you could do. Okay, well, I shouldn't have to worry about the pickle ram. I'm gonna pick it up from Landscape Solutions out on Casterville. Yeah, they they've they've got some of the cleaner compost from what everybody tells me right now and. Out on a field, uh, you know, Picklerlam's not going to, I wouldn't want it out there, but uh, Picklerlam was made to leave the grass alone and kill everything else. So if this is a field where you're raising hay or something like that, even if you get a little contamination in there, um, you got contamination, but it's not going to affect your hay crop. So uh, um, you have less to worry about than most of us do. I'll just put it that way. Now, I was saying I want to save some of their compost. I was going to get three different, four different varieties. How can I save that safely without uh, killing it all off in like in a bucket or something to when I get to the point of uh, making compost tea? Well, uh, basically just don't let it get too dry. Um, if it dries out completely, uh, that, you know, will... That will kill some of the microbes, about half the microbes out there, which is still, you know, thousands of varieties and billions of microbes, uh, have a resting state. And even if it, you know, dries out, whatever else, uh, it'll go into a resting state and you'll still have good compost. But if you can maintain some moisture in that compost, it's just going to get better and better instead of deteriorating. Uh, the thing that you, you definitely do not want to do is cover it up with plastic or something like that, because if you do that, you run the danger of it's going anaerobic. Of uh, While it's breaking down, it doesn't have enough oxygen, so it goes into an anaerobic decomposition, and then you get lose your good microbes and get some bad ones started in there. So do not cover it with plastic or anything airtight, but just it can just stay piled out there. You hose it down often enough to keep some moisture in there, and it's going to get better instead of deteriorating. All right, well, good deal. Oh, uh, just on the tip, 
I kind of discovered for folks who have chickens and we have a tree that uh, needs a root fair exposed, exposed. <laughs> what I do, I just, I just water the base of the tree. That brings in whatever bugs, and, it, and the chickens slowly, they'll scratch that stuff away. You start exposing your root flare. Plants are brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, I just watch the chickens do the work. So no. There you go. Well, maybe you ought to call them your tree flare exposure chickens and rent them out periodically. Go wet down the area and, and, and charge everybody a dollar per chicken per day to <laughs> expose their root flares. Sounds like a wonderful new industry to me. <laughs> hey, as much as chickens, chicken feed is nowadays, you got to do something else to pay for that. I isn't that the truth? Isn't that the truth? Oh. Well, you get out and have a great weekend. It's always a pleasure visiting with you. All right, you take care. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Goodbye. No. Oh, it's that's that's a good laugh for the morning. But it's true. Um, they're kind of hard on the garden, but I guess if you could train them to do it, it would have all sorts of possibilities. I get to take a second here and talk to you about other things that will really help, and that is good fertilizer. Feeding in the fall is so important. It's the single most important time of year for your grass and your trees and shrubs and ground covers. Getting ready to plant your winter vegetables. Yeah, it's a great thing to do to your garden. It's just a very, very critical time because when you feed your plants properly, it's going to make them more resistant to cold damage and it's going to allow them to store the nutrients they need to make that strong burst of growth next spring. Medina wants to let you know that they're growing green certified organic fertilizer, but you're just not going to find anything better for feeding in the fall. Don't be tricked into buying something that says winterizer. That's just a gimmick to get you to buy some, and it's probably a synthetic chemical fertilizer that I wouldn't even recommend using any time. Medina's growing green is good 365 days a year. Doesn't matter whether the soil's wet or dry, whether the temperature's hot or cold. It's going to go do its job. Doesn't really get to work until it gets a little moisture on it. But you put it out at your convenience, water on your regular schedule, and then you can know that you have put your landscape to bed for the winter, so to speak, or gotten your flower beds ready for the fall plantings of uh, vegetables and flowers. Uh, it's just Medina makes so many fine products, and that fertilizing so important this time of year, and their products so good. Medina also makes lots of good liquid fertilizers, liquid soil amendments and conditioners, plus they have supplements, whether it's liquid or dry humates, plus it's some of the best orange oil in the business, things like their soil activator and Medina Plus. There's just so many fine products that come from our friends at Medina. See the full list at medinaag.com. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening on an absolutely gorgeous Sunday morning out there. And there's so much to do, and you know, it's time. I think you'll find most of your nurseries have gotten in their broccoli and cauliflower and collards, and uh, I think still a little early for spinach, but most all the rest of your leafy greens and your cold crops. Today would be a great day to plant them. Too early for pansies, too early for cyclamen, but I'll bet you can find some beautiful petunias and uh, dianthus, maybe some snapdragons. All those things should go in the ground this afternoon, so don't be stuck with a uh, with a drab yard. Uh, looks like Jan, Brenda, and James, my next three callers, and Jan is up first. Good morning, Jan. Morning, Bob. Good morning. And my Meyer lemon tree is blooming on ready is it practicing or what uh, it's confused um what happens is Meyer lemons bloom after they've had a dormant period and most 
you know, years that dormancy is going to be induced by cold weather and short days. But anything that really stresses the plant, anything that pushes it toward dormancy, such as severe drought and extreme heat, when it comes out of that, the plant says, hey, it's a new growing season. Let's bloom and let's make fruit. And that's why we're seeing things in bloom in the fall that normally don't bloom until spring. Now, it's most of that little fruit is going to develop slowly, but probably two-thirds of it's going to stay on the tree. Two-thirds of it's going to grow into a decent lemon, and your tree's going to put on a bunch more blooms next February. It is normal time, so uh, it's it's just a little confused by this year's weather, just like many of us humans are. All right. The other thing, my, my yard looks like... Um... Luby's fried chicken, golden crispy. <laughs> Yours and mine both. <laughs> yeah. So I was thinking about putting a rye seed for the winter because it's the front yard and it looks so awful. Sure. And, and um, what, what's your basic grass? What, what's your basic grass? Do you have Bermuda? Okay. Um, you I need – well, yeah. Yeah, you need to continue to water your St. Augustine at least periodically because if it gets too dry, it will die on you. As far as overseeding with winter rye, yeah, by all means, uh, I like the uh, the dwarf varieties. Uh, one that we really like is called Top Flight. Uh, another one is called Pantera. But uh, it's late enough now that nothing wrong with overseeding today if you like. Just don't do it too heavily on bare ground, we do about a pound for, you know, maybe 50 to 100 square feet. In this case, make it a pound of seed for 100 to 200 square feet. And uh, get it out there, get it watered. You have to keep the seed moist. You may have to water lightly two or three times a day to get that rice seed germinated. But uh, it's cool enough now that it should do just fine. As soon as you find good seed, get it and get yourself a green yard to look at this winter. Yeah, I was thinking it was too early to plant it, so it's not, huh? No. As a matter of fact, my business partner planted a bunch of it a couple of weeks ago before we got that little bit of rain, and uh, it hasn't fared so well in the past week's total dry. But um, where it stayed watered, it's beautiful green and already up and uh, looking beautiful. So, no, at this point, with the cool mornings and the afternoons not getting much out of the 80s, uh, you're, you're okay to overseed any time you like. Oh, that's great. So one other question. I have a a bell pepper plant that I planted, and I it's supposed to be a red bell pepper. Uh-huh. So do they get red on on the bush before you if pick? You, if you leave them on long enough. <laughs> Every okay. bell pepper is going to eventually turn red. Even the green ones, when they get really fully ripe, they, they turn red. The nice thing about the varieties that are bred to be red or golden or whatever, is that they retain a good texture even after they've turned color. If you leave a green bell pepper out there, it's eventually going to turn red, but it's going to lose a lot of its crispness. So, um, yes, your your red bell peppers are going to start out green, and they should turn red while they're still on the on the plants, assuming the weather lets it. Okay. Alrighty, well, that's all I have for today, and I appreciate your help. And I appreciate your call, Jan. Have a wonderful Sunday, and we'll talk again. Uh, next in line is Brenda. Good morning, Brenda. Good morning, Bob. Uh, Good morning. I just have two questions for you. Um, okay. 
first, uh, I just haven't heard you talk about your uh, cedar fever tea recipe and my neighbor had it and she was making it for us and then she lost the recipe and so <laughs> I guess now I'm in charge. Uh, well, I, it couldn't couldn't be in better hands, Brenda. So um, what you do is you will want to harvest the tips of the branches. Now, if I were starting early, I'd I'd keep at least a couple of those cedar trees watered because uh, a lot of the cedar around the hill country is um, it, it's suffering from the drought like everything else. But pick a tree that has nice foliage, clip uh, probably a couple of cups of the uh, toward the branch tips, and it doesn't make any difference whether it's a male tree or a female tree. And what you're going to do is steep them. And there's a big difference between boiling something and steeping something. If you just want to boil something, you just throw it in there and bring the water to a boil. When you want to steep something, you bring the water to the boil, to a boil and then take it off the heat and then add whatever it is, in this case your uh, cedar branches, to it and let it soak, soak, soak several hours. And then you can just decant the liquid off into a quart jar or whatever you want to whatever you want to store it in and this is going to be your your mother stock so to speak and I have had people tell me they then take this and put it in something that tastes a little bit better whether it's tea or uh, probably not an alcoholic beverage but uh, you know tea or uh, some sort of flavored drink or something like that uh, most people will put two or three tablespoons to a cup of other liquid and then just drink that on a daily basis, and for it's it's just kind of amazing that uh, what it does for people that suffer from the cedar allergies, and uh, it works consistently. Just about you know everybody I know that's tried it has gotten tremendous relief. If you don't want to go to that much trouble, uh, my friend Rhonda out at Rhonda's Nature's Way, I get something from her that's called seasonal allergy relief. And I'm blessed that I don't have many problems with allergies, uh, rarely, although, boy, something in Colorado last week <laughs> had me sneezing and sniffling. But um, uh, uh, Rhonda has something that's called seasonal allergy relief that is just like a dropper full once a day. And people that have mild uh, seasonal allergies, it seems to work extremely well. She has another product called Cedar X. And uh, that's made, I think it's made similar to the way we just talked about making it at home. But if somebody doesn't want to take the time or for whatever reason doesn't want to make their own, I have no hesitation in sending you over to Rhonda either for Cedar X or for the seasonal allergy relief. But if you want to make your own, it's cheap, it's easy, you just have to remember to take it. Yes, and I think uh, I think she said you start October fifteenth, and you take a teaspoon a day of the, I, the tea. Uh, again, I I would go more like a tablespoon, but um, there's nothing in there that's going to harm you, and you're not going to have. And it's a cedar pollen. There's nothing about cedar that's really allergenic, but uh, the pollen when it starts releasing that, which it typically does January or February. You want to have your system ready to uh, accept that without, you know, putting up with all the symptoms. So, yeah, I think October 15th would probably be a pretty good day to start. Okay. Um, all right, great. Um, I'm going to do that for the neighbors now. I guess I'm in charge. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> thank you for that. Uh, 
the, the other question was my Mexican bird of paradise, which I grew from seeds. Mm-hmm. Uh, the lower branches are uh, getting really yellow. Yeah. Um, is that a lack of water or too much water? No, or? that's that's a lack of water in a time of year. It's one of those plants. It's going to drop all of its leaves. Uh, mine in the hill country usually freezes back to the ground. But these plants that normally go dormant through the fall and into the winter, they're reacting to having shorter days. They're reacting to having less light just because the sunlight's less intense. Perfectly normal and doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. Okay, good. I just didn't notice that last year, but I guess the circumstances were different. So uh, This has been a different yeah. year from one we've had in a long yeah. time, but uh, it, it's nothing to worry about. Go on watering on your regular schedule. Uh, they will be back next spring, and you should have a bumper crop of seed if you want to start some more. Oh, yeah. They're so easy to grow from seed. I just, I just love it. I just started three new little plants, so... Uh, they just give such color in the summertime when nothing else. Oh, absolutely! If I were you, yeah. I'd start about thirty of them, and you just got all your Christmas presents growing. Oh yeah, perfect. Thank you, Bob. <laughs> I That's always. It. Oh, I appreciate you, Brenda. Thank you. Goodbye. Okay. All right, uh, James, get a hang on a minute because I get to talk about Sam Sitterly and Green Grow Organics. Once again, this has been just such an unusual year. We're seeing things that just are odd out in the landscape, out in the garden. Sometimes we're just scratching our heads, but there a lot of times you wish you had somebody that you could say, hey, come walk through my landscape with me and let's talk about what's growing on. Let's talk about why some of it looks so good and why some of it needs help and what you should do. Well, that person could easily be Sam Sitterly because Sam's been doing exactly that for about 30 years now. His recommendations are always organic. Some things he will actually do for you, compost tea applications, some of the fertilizer applications and all. But his principal job is as your consultant to help you figure out what's going to be the best thing you can do to win Yard of the Month every month. (laughs) Most of us aren't going to do that. But Sam's the man that knows, has seen just about everything nature can throw at us over the past 30 years. And he can help you know what is the right thing to be doing in your yard this time of year or any time of year. Been doing it for a long time. Huge list of satisfied customers. You need to go to his website at GreenGrow, spelled out G-R-O-W, GreenGrowOrganics.com, and uh, take a look at the pictures. Take a look at the reviews. If you think it's something that would benefit you, give him a call. You know, be sure you understand any charges up front. Uh, set up a consultation, and you probably join that huge list of people that have him come out on a monthly or a quarterly or just as needed basis. His number is two ten. That's 210-559-5565. Check his website at greengroworganics.com. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. Uh, just got a minute or so, a couple of minutes before news. So let's get started with Clint. Clint, if we have to hold you through, I'm sorry, it's, uh, John's going to be the next one up, I believe. And um, anyway, it, James, that's what I'm looking for. James, good morning. Morning, Bob. How you doing this morning? You uh, <laughs> I was looking at the wrong page in front of me here. Yeah, it's... Uh, 
Ah, too many things to think about. Uh, keep a radio show done, to watch the clock, to do the proper ads, and to get out on the second for the news. But the other half of my brain thinks about gardening all the time. And how can I help you this morning? Oh, I was listening to you guys talking about spreading compost. And it reminded me what Malcolm Beck used to say. They'd ask him about when's the best time to put out compost, and he'd tell them, Right before a two-inch rain's about the best time to do that, boys. <laughs> well, I, I I tell people it was right before the last two-inch rain because who knows when the next one's going to get here. But uh, yeah, yeah it's, every, uh, everybody's talking about the not raining, but I'm the only one talking about this might be the first year in a three-year drought. So nobody wants to talk about that. Well. Sadly, the historical record shows that we've had droughts that lasted 30 years back sometime around the Middle Ages. Uh, the tree ring data indicates we had a drought that lasted almost 100 years. So uh, the potential, Mother Nature, this earth runs on cycles which we can't understand and can't predict, and we have no idea exactly what causes them. So. I'm not a gloom and doom guy, and I'm not at all convinced that mankind is responsible for some of well, this stuff. But it it's, ain't uh, gonna rain anymore, so that's all you gotta. It, uh, it, it just ain't gonna rain. Man. You're just too much of a pessimist, James. It's gonna rain, and it's gonna rain, rain very well. We just don't know when, but it's uh, uh, it, it is concerning in that uh, September is typically one of our wettest months, and we got virtually nothing in September, but. The meteorologists that are paid to know what they're talking about say that we should be moving back into Enso Neutral, which is more rain, and then back into uh, uh, the wetter El Nino pattern. So uh, we'll take a look at that. We can talk some more, but right now I've got to go to news. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now, 210-599-5555. All right, back to gardening on an absolutely gorgeous Sunday morning out there. Bright sunshine starting to warm up. You can shed those long sleeves pretty soon, but boy, it's been a beautiful morning. We're going to visit with James, and then it's going to be Robbie and Larry and Mark. Oh, James uh, James said he wanted to say and got back to his garden, I guess. Uh, that leaves uh, Robbie next in line. Good morning, Robbie. Good morning. How we doing? We are. I'm doing very well. I hope you are, too. Uh, I am. Good. Uh, refilling my uh, hummingbird feeders. Important uh, job. <laughs> uh, I've got a ton of leaves on my on my yard, mm -hmm. and I was wondering if if I wanted to put compost on top, should I? Can I just leave the leaves? And are they big leaves like uh, sycamores and red oaks, or are they small leaves like live oaks? Live oak and pecan, pecan trees, mostly. You can put the compost right on top of it. I mean, that's what Mother Nature does. If it were me, I would probably run over it with a lawnmower. I've got one of those uh, mulching types of mowers. And if you chop the leaves up just a little bit, it's going to give more surface area. The compost is going to react more quickly to break them down. Uh, but that's not mandatory at all. In, in the best of all worlds, like I say, I'd, I'd run through them and chop them up a little bit and then put the compost on top. But if that's not possible, just put your compost on, 
water on your regular schedule. And, uh, oh, Malcolm Beck used to explain it by saying those trees have roots way down deep in the ground. They can take up minerals and nutrients that your grasses and things up toward the surface could never reach. So this is how nature takes the deeper minerals in the earth and puts them back up on top of the ground. So, yeah, leaving those leaves on, on the ground is very important. Putting a thin layer of compost on top to help them decompose more quickly, best possible thing you could do for your yard. Okay, do you know anything about, uh, there's a, a place on Evans Road and Lookout Road that has compost, I believe, I think it's free. But I was just curious if, uh, how good that might be. I don't know about Evans Road at Lookout. Uh, they do have, the city does have a place that's more like out on Bitters Road. But um, I would inquire, you know, as to as to where they get their materials. Uh, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Up in Bernie, our county you know, gives it away. It's just ground material brought in for recycling. It's not going to be quite as good quality as what you buy that has some compost and things mixed in with it. What you're getting is more of what I would call a mulch, but uh, it's just, you know, good native materials. I would always wear gloves when you're handling it, where if you don't know where it came from, I saw a very sad case one time where a lady had gone out and picked up a big load of it, got down on her hands and knees and spread it underneath her shrubs and then found out the hard way that there had been a little bit of poison ivy mixed in with it. And mm. so, like that whole song says, you're going to need an ocean, a calamine lotion. So uh, free is good. It's like I say, it's not going to be quite the same quality as what we call a living mulch that has a bunch of compost blended in. Uh, but nothing wrong with it. It's, it's perfectly good material. Okay, I think it's either located like in Selma or Live Oak in that area. Yeah, most most all the cities now have a brush pickup program, and thankfully, rather than burn it like they used to, nowadays they grind it up and uh, give it away or... Uh, you know, some places like where I am up in the hill country, they really appreciate it if you tip the driver uh, who can load it. Some places you have to load your own. Some places they'll have somebody standing by with a bobcat or a front-end loader or something. It'll actually put it on your truck or trailer for you. And I always make a point to tip those guys because it's hard work. But uh, it's if yeah. it's not free, it's very close to it, and you are getting a, a good quality product. Okay. But if I, if I wanted something a little better, I live in... Do you have a place that you would recommend? There is a location. I understand they've recently changed hands, and I don't know the new owners yet, but I know that um, uh, Stone and Soil Depot now has a location up in that neighborhood out on 35, and they've always been a good source of quality compost. Like I say, until I get to until I get to know the new owners, I'm not going to make promises, but... Um, uh, they have always been a pretty reliable source, and I think they would probably be the ones closest to you. Uh, Thomas Stone and Landscape is a little jaunt across uh, uh, the way you could go on out 3350, not 3351, uh, 3009. Uh, you could go on out to 46 and then take uh, a left. Uh, there are big places there uh, right there in Spring Branch, and uh, they consistently have very good quality products. Thomas Stone and Landscape is their name. Okay. Um, I was considering calling Sam Siddeley. Is that just uh -huh. his last name right? Yes. Uh -huh. he comes to my area. 
he, on as well. I know he I know he goes up uh have one friend in San Marcos that he goes up to help up there. So I mean the call is free. <laughs> call him and ask him if he if he'll come tell him it's on his way to San Marcos when he when he goes to see our friends up there. So uh and he he might very well come there. Uh, it's uh uh, I, I just call him and find out. Did you get the number? I gave it uh, a little while ago. And, uh, yes, sir. I, okay. Yeah, just call him. He's a nice guy. And if it's more than he can do right now, uh, perhaps when uh, things slow down a little bit, uh, he can he can make it a point to get out and help you. Yeah, I'm going to send him an SOS signal. <laughs> we all are. I, I I kid you not. Everybody thinks that, oh, you're in this business. You must have a beautiful garden and yard. I've had the worst garden I've had. I can't remember when I had a garden this bad. And uh, it's not for lack of effort on my part. It's just been weather-wise, lack of rain-wise. This has been a tough year on everybody's yard. So don't be apologizing for, you know, calling for help or getting somebody good to Take a look at it and tell you what's going on. They're just the, some of the best gardeners out there looking exactly the same thing this year. Yeah, because my yard is, I mean, the ground has gotten so hard. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I'd, I'm hoping compost and maybe if he can come help me. Oh, it definitely, absolutely will. I jokingly tell people I, I lost uh, three calves last week because they fell into the cracks in the ground. And that's about how bad it is up in the hill country. But, you know, the rains will come one of these days. And when I look at some of the pecan trees and some of the oak trees on my property that I know are two to 400 years old, that tells me that, you know, a lot of these native things have seen droughts worse than this before, back in the 50s especially. And uh, uh, things always turn around eventually. I'm just hoping it's sooner rather than later. No, me too. Well, I'll, I'll let you go. I know you got other people with that questions for you. Well, Robbie, I appreciate it. And uh, you get out and have a wonderful Sunday. I appreciate the call. Thank you. Thank okay. You. Bye. All right. Uh, let's see here. Be sure I'm getting things in proper order. Looks like I get to talk to you about Southwest Metal Roofing Systems, and that is always such a pleasure. Southwest Metal Roofing Systems has been around a long time. I guess it's been at least 20 years since they put the uh, roof on my home. And let me tell you, that roof is as beautiful as the day they installed it. I've never called them with one single problem here at the nursery. We had one of their roofs installed many years ago. And uh, I, even though we had hail as big as baseballs, didn't do any damage to the roof. The only time we've had problems when a big old tall box truck backed into one corner of it. Yeah, they came out and replaced a couple of panels there. But even a Southwest Metal Roofing Systems roof doesn't stand up to that. I had the tornado go through our neighborhood a few years ago. I called him and said, hey, did uh, Rex, did you guys have any any problems with any of your roofs? And he said, only the one the tree fell on. So they just put on a roof that truly will last a lifetime for you. Beautiful roof, lots of different choices in the style of metal and the color that you put on, but all the same great lifetime material. Save you money on your insurance bills, save you money on your monthly utility bills, and just have a really, really good-looking, reasonably priced roof. Even if you're in new construction, why not have Southwest Metal Roofing Systems put on the first roof, and it'll be the only roof you ever have to replace on that home. Right now, they've got a very special deal going into, uh, for a limited time, you can take 10% off the contract price of the roof, or if you choose, this is not and, this is or, you can get 24 months interest-free financing, whichever works for your 
business, just uh, keep in mind. If you need a new roof, the number to call is 210-822-6868. That's 210-822-6868 for Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. It's going to be Larry and Mark and CD and Debbie. Larry is up first. Good morning, Larry. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, sir. Yeah, uh, I got a real problem with uh, something plowing up my my yard, my grass, uh, St. Augustine. Okay. I don't know whether it's uh, skunks, raccoons, or an armadillo. Got if, does it does it look like an area probably you know sort of an expanded area two or three feet wide two or three feet long or is it just individual little depressions being being dug in the soil well it's it's individual depressions you know, kind of pointed like you know mm-hmm. like you stuff stuff a cone into it yeah but it's all over you know you walk yep. across there you uh, I, I put nematodes on it earlier this year, but I can't get any. Uh, they say it's too too hot, but oh, it's not too hot. You can if you're dealing with a good nursery. I mean, we keep them 365 days a year, but unfortunately, that's not always the answer to the problem because so many times uh, those creatures that are digging are going after earthworms. <laughs> And those are the good guys we want to keep around. There's the only really sure way to know is to put out a live trap. Uh, you can bait it with dried fruit. In the case of uh, raccoons, I know this sounds weird, but they have a real sweet tooth for marshmallows. And uh, I we find they just can't resist a marshmallow. Uh, the only thing that you want to be careful of is... Uh, you know, sometimes you think, and, and this is personal experience talking, sometimes you think you're trying to trap a raccoon and you wind up with a skunk in the trap, and that just means you have to handle it a little bit carefully. When that happened to me, I simply hung a or held a black plastic garbage bag in front of me, thinking I wouldn't let the skunk see me. I walked out to the trap. Uh, nothing bad happened. I draped the black plastic bag over the trap. Nothing bad happened, and I put it in the back of the vehicle and took it to somewhere safe to do so and released it so uh you just have to be a little bit more careful i had a friend that did it right until he went to put it in the trunk of his car and then he slammed the thing down wrong <laughs> and uh, let's just oh, no. say his, his trunk didn't smell very good for a while but i mean if he had a game camera or something like that and uh i you know was given one for a christmas gift one year and got a good one at bass pro for not a whole lot of money but uh you put a little game camera out there and figure out in a hurry what's doing it but uh, it's it's number one on the list is probably a raccoon or a possum uh skunks are possible and armadillos are certainly out there but armadillos tend to if they find a softer area they're going to plow up a little bit wider area but um all of those things are out there digging and like i say uh you know people always say oh they're going after the grub worms and well it's not real likely right now because the grubs that are out there are way down deep in the soil oh, and uh-huh. most of these creatures are looking for earthworms is probably the principal thing they're they're finding out there but um i i don't know anybody that lives on a green belt or out in the country that's not seeing some of that in their yard right now because literally the only moist places around are going to be 
you know, the places where Larry has put some moisture on the ground, and uh, unfortunately that's going to be attractive to the insects and or the annelids, and then that's going to be attractive to these digging creatures. All right. Well, I, you know, I might just do that camera business. And Yeah, and there are things you can do. I mean, a really hot pepper spray, get the hottest things you can find, whether they're scorpions or... Um, just <laughs> there, there's some really there's some peppers out there so hot the military's looking at using them. Uh, but oh. you know, wear 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 some uh, you know, kitchen gloves. Throw them in the blender, blend them up, and spray that stuff around or put it around. And it's interesting. It doesn't bother the birds at all because birds can't taste heat. We have a friend up in New Braunfels that produces a type of bird seed. It's uh, He sells so much of it, it's, he hard, has trouble producing enough, but it's called Flaming Hot. And he coats the bird seed with this stuff, and the birds absolutely love it. The squirrels and the possums and things like that don't even come near it. So uh, if yeah. it's a limited area, I would hate to, you know, tell you to do your whole yard. And if you have dogs that like to roll in the yard, it's probably not a real good idea. But you can repel these creatures with hot pepper. Uh, blood meal works reasonably well, and blood meal is a good fertilizer, but it's cost a little bit of money, and uh, you have to replace it. Uh, whenever it you know gets thoroughly moistened, but uh, once I, I think step one would be figure out who's doing the digging, and then we can address what the best way to try to get rid of that particular creature is. All right, Bob. Well, these last few days have been great. In the morning. But, <laughs> well, you know, I'm. Let's I'm, hope I'm that continues. Yeah, you and me too. We're we're claiming responsibility. My business partner and I were in Colorado visiting some gardens and other things up there last week, and we just happened our arrival back in San Antonio happened to coincide with the arrival of the kind of weather we had up in Colorado. So we're claiming we had something to do with bringing it back, but. <laughs> Well, you thank know. you, Bob. I appreciate <laughs> <Yeah>. that. <laughs> I just wish we could have brought some of the rain, too. But uh, do do set out your game camera. Let me know what you find, and I will try to help you develop a plan to uh, encourage them to go elsewhere. Okay, I will. Thanks, Bob. You're Bye-bye. welcome. I appreciate the call. Thank you. Uh, next in line is Mark. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, sir. Well, these, bet- these, these really cool mornings have brought the hummingbirds back. <laughs> I don't know that it's brought them back. I suspect it's brought some of their northern relatives uh, deciding it's about time to head south. But uh, yeah. it's uh, it's a fun thing to see. I guess they blew in. We we fed about two hundred yesterday again. Wow. It's uh, well, it was it was well, it was forty four degrees this morning, and that you know they have to eat a lot more when it's that cold. Amen. And you can make your sugar a little stronger. What what species are you seeing out there now, Diana? What are we seeing now? This is standard, just a regular black chin and uh, ruby throat right now. Yeah. I love it when you get some of the broad tails coming through that sound like a mortar shell coming in. And uh, some of our our northern friends that don't stick around for the summer are sure entertaining as they make their their pilgrimage back to the south. But uh, that's good. Glad glad to hear it. Shows that fall is really in the air. Right. Yeah. So uh, first, first uh, a comment. So there was very few insects, you know, until we got that rain, just of any right. type out there. And, right. and the wasps were not even putting any larvae in their nests because they didn't have food for them, I guess. Uh huh. So, so we got the aphid outbreak, and there was there was I only had seen one lacewing up to that, and no ladybugs. Uh-huh. So I, I ordered lacewing eggs 
and ladybugs. And just FYI, I've got three different shipments of lacewing eggs, and none of them hatched at all. So really? I'm, I'm in a dis- discussion now with, with the people. <laughs> I got the ones on the card, and they came in looking brown instead of green. Mm. And, and, they, and yeah. they never did anything. But well, try, try Hydro Gardens out of Colorado Springs. We've had pretty good luck with them. Oh, okay. Okay, I'll check that next. But the, the ladybugs work great. Yeah. So I got like 2,000, and, and you try to let them go, and they want to crawl all over you when you let them go. <laughs> and a lot of people don't realize ladybugs will take a little bite out of you, too. They're not, they're not just kind, gentle little creatures that everybody thinks they are, but they sure are effective uh, in controlling a lot of things. Uh, ladybugs been hard to find this year, of course, because California limited their export because the Native populations got hurt so badly by drought and by fire in the areas where they usually collect them, and I'm I'm all in favor of protecting you know the native species in their native environment, but it sure made it hard to find ladybugs. There there are a few of them out there. Certainly hoping that by next spring they'll be available in much much bigger quantities. But yeah, the aphids were bad, and the the ag producers have uh, been looking at a. Pretty bad infestation of some of the sod webworms have moved in. We're wow. seeing mealybugs on landscape plants that I have never in my life seen mealybugs on. So, you know, gardening is just a challenge, but uh, it's different every year, and this is one of those challenging years. It'll make us appreciate the years that things are a little easier. Right, right. So, so the, the other thing we have a we have another big problem here. It looks like the, so we've had this you know oak wilt problem and then the freeze damage and trees right. trees dying all year well now we have bleeding trees um, uh-huh. and and i've talked to i've communicated with david vaughn and three other really experienced arborists and they're not real clear apparently it's some kind of a bacterial infection that gets inside of the bark probably and, so and just start oozing out i mean one mm-hmm. of the big the big post oak is just oozing all over the place oh and, and the mesquites are even worse it's and, yeah and 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 now found it on three live oaks too and from what from what I've read, it sounds like there's nothing you can really do about it. Like they're going to die eventually. And, well, and so it's great. it's it's stress related. And if we can take care of the stress, which means rainfall among other things, um, I've seen trees that that were appeared to be very seriously infected, and then the weather changed and the trees recovered with very few after effects. And so, oh. uh, a lot is just going to depend on. You know what the weather does. I would definitely go on uh, dirtdoctor.com and take a look at what they suggest is a so-called sick tree treatment, which is also okay. very good for healthy trees. But uh, if we can send you to persist with as severe a drought as we have now, I, we just can't water enough. And uh, there's something much more magical about rainwater than there is about well water. So. Uh, we may lose some trees to it. It is uh, there's very little treatment for it except to minimize the stress. But I have seen okay. trees totally recover from it. But um, until and and you know the cooler weather is very definitely actually going to help some. But we need we need inches of rainfall on top of it. And I think you'd be right. amazed if we can get that by next spring. You'll know a lot of these trees. You'll never know they had a problem. So, so at least one of these trees is weeping at a bunch of places. So you think that may recover too? Have you seen something that's really bad recover? I've seen some pretty sick trees recover 
from okay. this problem. Been been a while since we have seen a lot of it, but last time we had a drought uh, anywhere close to this was 2011, which was our worst one-year drought since they started keeping weather records. So right. been right. a while since we looked at this, but yeah, we saw a lot of it that year. So, so one re- one thing I want to ask too is so so David was stressing the the root flare thing. Right. So these are, these are these are out in the woods where there's you know they're just in nature and we're not messing with them. Do mm-hmm. you think there's a reason? You think it would be a benefit to dig deeper than the native level and expose more of the roots below the standard level where they are? I think you have to look at the individual trees to answer that question. Um, and everybody says, well, nothing's ever been piled around them, and yet the champion pecan tree, the biggest tree in the state of Texas, was buried like six feet too deep, but it happened to be in an area where there was a periodic water flow through there that okay. simply brought in so much alluvial soil that piled up around the trunk of the tree, and uh, um, it did a whole lot better when you know when they went in and took that away. Lots of There's a big story behind that, too, but um, just the fact that the trees have, you know, not had development around them doesn't mean that they may not be too deep because mother nature periodically buries them a little bit too yeah, deeply yeah. and uh and sometimes the tree will simply do much better if you can go in and take care of that and it's not going to hurt to go too deep i guess i you know i i'm not quite as extreme as howard is and how okay. deeply to do it but uh, I'm sure you've traveled around. I we go to the gift market periodically in Atlanta, and I look at the just incredibly beautiful root flares we see on everything from crepe myrtles to oaks and things like that. And actually, on my own ranch, I've I've got uh, some uh, Lacey's oak and things like that that have just in absolutely beautiful root flares. So once you've seen a fully mature tree and seeing what the root flare ought to look yeah. like, it'll yeah. give you a pretty good indication of what you're trying to yeah. accomplish. Yeah. Okay. And and David said to paint every cut on every oak now, and that's going to – I have to trim these post oaks up off our roof every year, and I'm cutting a lot of small branches, so it's going to be a really big thing to trim every little twig I cut on these post oaks. You know, I've I've not talked to him, and I need to I need to get with David. I did not know he was recommending painting on post oaks. I well, I, I have did. still been you know uh, live oaks and red oaks. I I totally agree, and I've always said yeah. that on yeah. live oaks and red oaks. But I I did not realize that there was a susceptibility issue. The truth is that just about any oak tree can get oak wilt, but only a handful of trees is the disease going to be serious enough to kill the tree so um and occasionally we see it he was telling me about i think a a monterey oak that they had seen somewhere that was just overwhelmed there was so much oak wilt all around but the majority of the time in my experience at least the post oaks the lacy's oaks the uh, monterey oaks uh even though technically they are they could get oak wilt the disease you know, rarely becomes a problem for them. It's like, a, you know, it's like a lot of human ailments that uh, mo- many of us can get them and never even know we have them, and yet a person with a compromised immune system, uh, they can be lethal to. So uh, uh, I'll get with David. I, it's been a while well, since Bob, I've this, sat and visited with him. Yeah. This this came from this bacterial thing that, that that's infecting the post oaks and the live oaks. He's okay. worried about this bacterial thing coming in. 
Okay, well, I, let me talk to him and see yeah. because I okay. did not realize that uh, there was a danger of it being transferred around. I've always been big on cleaning yeah. your, your pruning tools. Uh, Clorox is good, but it's hard on the metal. Uh, I think good, strong hydrogen peroxide yeah. does an equally yeah. good job, and I am, I am very much on pruning tool cleaning. But uh, let me talk to him and find out. In fact, he's probably listening this morning, and yeah. I'll have an email in a while that tells me you know, where he's recommending painting to stop bacterial issues. Issues, but I certainly appreciate you bringing me up to date on that. On my small limbs, I was trying to figure out how to cover those cuts, and I was thinking of using one of these squeeze tubes of latex caulk just to dab on there, because you can't take a spray can and cut and spray a half, you know, a half inch thick very well. Yeah, it's a little challenging. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, I used to, uh, back in the days when we didn't realize that paint was just as good as a so-called uh, tree wound dressing, right. uh, they right. made cans, and kind of like, you know, I'm sure you've used the, the primer and the PVC solvent and stuff, right. putting pipe together, that right. little thing down on the end of a, that actually attaches right. to the top, right. of the top of the can, that's right. Right. not right. too hard to use, and... Um, I, I'm sure there's, I'm sure among our <laughs> faithful listeners, there are a few clever people yeah, who come yeah, up with an yeah. even better way to do it, and I'll certainly pass yeah, it along yeah. when I hear it. Well, that's why I came up with this, because on this steep, slanted metal roof, it's going to be hard to deal with the can with the top on it, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> anyway, well, I'll let you know what happens. <laughs> I'll look forward okay. to hearing from you, Mark, and in the meantime, enjoy your hummingbirds and let us know anything unusual you see. Okay, I'll do that. Okay, thanks, Bob. Thank uh, you, sir. Uh, <laughs> Goodbye. All right. You know, this guy even has his own website, and they have literally in summer months hundreds and thousands of hummingbirds that they've created just a paradise for up in the Fredericksburg area. So anyway, always always fun to hear from Mark. Let's get a break out of the way, and then I'll talk to C.D. and Debbie. Looks like I get to remind you about watching your watering. Bad news is that uh, if you don't follow the SAWS water restrictions, you may be setting yourself up for, for a hefty fine, even for a first-time offender. The good news is that the system, that the uh, uh, the re regulations are relatively re easy to follow. You know, what is it, 7 to 11, I believe, early in the morning or in the evening on your appropriate day of the week. And that's enough water to keep you grass and other plants healthy to get them through this. may not be as lush and beautiful as it is in times of more water, but we really need to protect our water supply. And that's what uh, the drought restrictions are all about. We've got to protect the quality, the quantity, and the infrastructure that delivers the water to us. So be smart. And and do your part, follow the restrictions, and if you have any questions, because uh, the drought levels do change, always check out saws.org and look for the different drought stages and see what the restrictions are. Like I say, the good news is it's enough water to keep your landscape healthy. Bad news is they are levying a lot of fines these days, so don't let yourself be one of those people. Check out saws.org for all the information you need on watering appropriately and effectively. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. Right, back to gardening once again and back to the phone calls. I believe CD is next in line. Good morning, CD. Good morning, Bob. How you doing? Uh, it's just a beautiful morning out there. Only thing I can complain about is lack of rainfall and it doesn't do any good to complain. So <laughs> we just make the best of it. Yes, sir. We're up here in Spring Branch. We had about 48 degrees this morning. It's just beautiful. Oh, wow. 
You know, I forgot to look early, early. I suspect I was in the low 50s in Bernie, and it, it was chilly in the house. My big old kitty cat was really snuggling last night, but I'll take that <laughs> over uh, lying there sweating, that's for sure. Heck yeah, heck yeah. Hey, just one quick question for you. Uh, I've got some of that row cover, and you were saying to – if we put it over the top of our tomatoes, that it would kind of help with the hot sun and everything. Yes, if sir. We did is now a time that I t- could take it off, or should I just leave it on there? I I would take it off. I mean, we're we're at a point when the tomatoes, even in best of circumstances, we've only got another six eight weeks that we can hope to get much out of them, and the days being shorter, the temperatures being lower. Uh, the the damage that the sun does is related to leaf temperature, and I, we're not totally out of the woods yet, but I'd be pulling it off because I want to get as much nutrition as I can into those things to at least try to get a few tomatoes. There, there are weird things going on. I've, I've seen some mummified peppers this week, and that's a very uncommon thing. So, yeah, I'd, I'd go ahead and pull your row cover off and uh, keep your fingers crossed. All righty, we'll do that. We uh, our, our jalapenos have been growing very strange this year. They're yep. supposed to be real big ones, and they're little bitty ugly ones. So, And we're with a real tough stem and, and almost a checkered pattern on the stem. It's, we see that oh, yeah. occasionally on fruit trees, but it's rare to see it in peppers, but we're seeing all sorts of rare things this year. So uh, I guess it's it's kind of like some of our sports teams. It's wait till next year. Things have got to get better. So uh, it's not anything you're doing. It's what the weather's doing to you. But I get that row cover off and uh, keep your fingers crossed. We've still got some good growing on the on the warm crops and certainly time to get some of the cool weather crops in the ground. So got a big afternoon in the garden. Yes, sir. Thank you. Hey, one thing Thanks. before I go, me and my wife just wanted to say we appreciate you. We appreciate your show. And keep up the good work, my friend. Well, you're very kind. It's uh, it's a pleasure for me. Believe me, I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't get up at three thirty on uh, on Saturday mornings and five o'clock on Sunday mornings if I didn't enjoy my visits with you. So I do appreciate the do appreciate the kind words. You guys get out and have a wonderful Sunday. You too. Thank you, Bob. Thanks, Eddie. Goodbye. All right. Let's uh, yeah, let's go ahead and talk to Debbie. Good morning, Debbie. Hey. Good. Good morning. I'm Good morning. The same trouble he is with my jalapenos. I just thought I was not taking proper care of them. No, so, it's it's something weird about the weather. Call mummification, and um, I, they're you know they're tough. They still have fairly good flavor, but they're just ugly little things. They're a third the size they ought to be, and uh, it's all the weather. It's not anything you're failing to do. Oh. So uh, I have a friend who just bought a house, and it looks like behind them is a ditch. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm a little concerned about what their builder is going to do for the erosion because they have a fence that they put up, but right behind it's not a lot of room. Uh-huh. Um, is there something you would suggest? Like in my yard, I have my husband calls them scrub oaks, and it looks like the acorns from last year probably grew. Mm-hmm. If we dig those up, do those grow up to be – I have one that's probably about five feet tall already that I just haven't pulled out because everything that froze last year, I can't get it to replace now because the sure. deer keep eating it. So sure. will those little scrub oaks grow, or should I just put you know killer on them and pull them out? Okay, we've got two or three different issues we need to talk about here, and we'll talk about the oaks first. Those are almost certainly not acorns. Those are actually sprouts coming off the roots 
of your oak trees and this is what oak trees do when they get stressed and the weather has been so stressful so they do not transplant well uh, but it's perfectly normal in nature this is uh, why we get what we call mots we get bunches of trees growing close together with an interconnected root system so uh, they're not transplantable whether you leave them alone or whether you cut them off uh, that is totally up to you if the wound is very big uh, like over, if it's bigger than your thumb, let's say, you do need to seal that wound if you cut it off, unless you do what I do, which is just cut it off below ground level. But, um, so moving uh, that to the back of that fence wouldn't help the erosion because it's not going to do anything. No, no. Now, what I would recommend, because builders are not trustworthy, uh, almost without exception, there are a handful of good ones out there, but you really need to take pictures of the neighbor's lot and of your lot and if they do anything which they might do that starts dumping a bunch more water onto your lot that starts causing you erosion problems and things like that that's against the law and they are responsible for it and uh, they cannot legally do anything that's going to uh, you know divert water onto your yard just to keep it off of the property that they're developing. So I take some pictures so that you have evidence if it turns out to be a problem long term. Now anywhere you've got a slope you're gonna have some erosion and it may be that you know that's just naturally the way your lot came. You deal with it with you know planting plants that have thick root systems that will keep that from happening. But uh, it's it's not only uh, unkind but it's also illegal for them to develop the land around you where it degrades the quality of your land so uh, just keep that in mind and we'll deal with that if it becomes a problem but some photographic evidence would be a very good thing to have since you were there long before any of this other started okay so um, I also noticed my I've been gone and I noticed that my crepe myrtle tree is kind of brownish leaves Mm -hmm. And when I got closer and looked at it, I try not to do crepe murder, as you call it. But <laughs> right. I noticed at the right where the leaves, I mean, where the branches are coming out, it looks like there are ants in there now. Well, then, and if you touch. problem with that. No, and if you touch the leaves, the leaves are very sticky. And the next thing you're going to see is black mold growing all over those uh, kind of brownish leaves. And what it is, yeah. we've had a, just a tremendous aphid infestation this summer. It's not life-threatening to the crepe myrtles, but it certainly keeps the blooms from being as pretty. And it'll seem like something's just dripping underneath. And what that is is aphid poop. I don't know any other way to put it. Oh, the ex I see the that on the back of the leaves. I didn't yeah. see that. The excrement from the aphids is very sugary, and the ants like it. The ants come in to eat it. In fact, ants will actually carry aphids around and put them on other plants, uh, sort of farming the aphids so they can come back and eat that what they produce. And it's also being sugary. It will grow a black mold on it, kind of a bread mold kind of mold. Good news is that the crepe myrtles are about to drop all their leaves anyway. So do give them a good thorough watering every week or two if they're established trees. And uh, if you want to do something about the aphids, you certainly can. But at this late date, it's not mandatory. I certainly am making a big effort to never park underneath a big crepe myrtle or a pecan tree or your whole car will suddenly be sticky and you have to work to get it off your windshield. Uh, but that's just the aphids, and this is just an exceptionally bad year for them. But 
Freeze will take care of that, and hopefully next year will be better. So I would I would look at caring for your crepe myrtles, all the things we talk about. Be sure the root flare is exposed. Be sure you give them periodic deep watering and some fertilizer. Crepe myrtles are going to come out of it just fine, but uh, most of them look uh, pretty rough right at this point in the summer. Should I do something about the ants that seem to be going into the trunk or just leave them alone? I Are they black ants or are they like a red and black ant? They look black. Okay. Those are probably fire ants. They're not really doing much in the trunk. The red and black ones are the carpenter ants, which sometimes can hollow out and eat some of the dead wood. Uh, If you want to do anything, just get a little bit of spinosad soap or even straight spinosad. I like spinosad soap even better. Uh, dilute it appropriately, or you can actually buy it already mixed up in a little spray bottle. Uh, totally harmless to people and, pa- and pets, but it's a very good ant killer. And uh, it's the ants are not likely to be causing much of a problem, but they're uh, if they are fire ants, which they probably are, they'll sure sting the heck out of you given the opportunity. So yeah, I'd probably get a little spinosad soap and spray them. Okay, well, and it does get watered because it's in my landscaping, and I have a sprinkler system, so it does get watered, and I hand water around it because I have plants that well, that, that hand pillow is not even alone. <laughs> that hand watering is the good thing. Sprinkler systems don't water trees and shrubs; they they water grass. They don't put out enough water to effectively do very much for crepe myrtles or trees or things like that. But where you can, giving them some supplemental deep watering will certainly help them. And if you do decide to spray the aphids, don't spray the whole plant because chances are you have a bunch of natural predators out there that are starting to control the aphids. But where you see the ants, if you want to spray a little spinosad soap on them, I think it'd probably be a good thing to do. Okay. And I got the vinegar, molasses, and one, oh, orange oil at your store, and I lost my little orange square of paper. Can you give us that recipe? <laughs> I can't, or you can get another little orange instruction sheet next time you're over this way. But uh, the combination to make a good, safe weed killer is, uh, and you don't have to make this much. You can, you can uh, dilute it down, or you can uh, reduce the quantities. But uh, the ratio is one gallon of vinegar, two ounces of orange oil, and maybe a tablespoon or so of molasses, and just mix that up and spray it on. You don't dilute it with water, and it will kill just about anything you spray it on, uh, uh, annual weeds and things like that. It'll totally kill them, and they won't come back. Perennials, you may have to spray a couple of times. But a gallon of vinegar, two ounces of orange oil, and a teaspoon or two of molasses. And that one doesn't get any dish soap in it. I'm thinking it had Dawn in it. It doesn't. You not? can, yeah, you can add a little bit of dish soap if you want. That's just a surfactant that spreads it out. Uh, not absolutely necessary, but certainly won't hurt anything. Okay. And why are my hibiscus putting on beautiful blooms? I mean, buds, but then they fall off without ever opening. Uh, it's it's sort of typical of hibiscus, and it probably means that you need to water them both a little more often and a little more thoroughly. You're probably Got seeing it. a few yellow leaves, too. The double-flowered types are worse about dropping their buds, but even the single-flowered ones, uh, in the extreme heat and dry, they've been dropping some of them. But as the weather cools off, if you just make certain that they never get totally dry, that they get a thorough watering when they're dry on the surface, you should have beautiful hibiscus flowers this fall. 
Well, you know, I never knew that the double one, that's usually the ones I buy because they're pretty. So you're going to make yeah. me not buy those kind anymore. Well, just them. just buy a bunch of different ones. But in the spring and in the fall, uh, the doubles are much more prone to drop their buds than the single flower types are. Well, thank you for all your information. You're always helpful. Have a good it's always, weekend. It's my pleasure. Thank you for the call, Debbie. Really appreciate it. All right. We do have a couple of open lines. Grab one if you like. 210-599-5555. I get to talk to you about the Freeze Miser. If you're new to the area, you've probably never heard of it. If you've been here a while, I hope you already have your Freeze Misers from the past couple of winters. Because let me tell you, this is one of the most remarkable devices I have ever seen. If it's something new to you... What it does is protects your pipes, your hydrants in freezing weather. I know the old way was to go out and drip them, so to speak, and hope that it didn't get cold enough to freeze and break your pipes. Well, the freeze miser does that automatically for you without any batteries or wires or anything else. Just some remarkable chemistry in there. Just a couple of brilliant guys came up with this little device. You screw it on the hydrant, turn the water on, and walk away. Nothing happens. Nothing comes out unless the temperature of the water has nothing to do with temperature of the air but if the temperature of the water in the pipes gets down to 37 degrees fahrenheit automatically the freeze miser starts dripping your hydrant just enough to keep it from freezing and breaking and then as soon as it warms up stops dripping i put my freezers on in the fall take them off in the spring and doesn't matter whether it's 19 degrees or 9 degrees Things come through just fine. You can put them on the end of a hose up to maybe 100 feet in length, and they'll keep the hose from freezing. But remember, you've got to turn the water on. You have to have the water to be able to move through there if the uh, water gets cold enough and the freeze miser kicks into action. You say, but I want to use that hydrant to water things too. Just put a little Y connector on there. Put the freeze miser on one side and hook your hose onto the other side. Turn the water on and just uh, regulate your watering with the little individual cutoffs on the Y connector. They work. I've used them for the past two years, and literally hundreds and hundreds of people that I talk to are so pleased with the freeze miser because it just takes the guesswork out of uh, protecting your pipes. And maybe you've got a fishing shack at the coast, or maybe you've got a, a hunting lodge up in the hill country that you don't visit regularly. Protect it. Get yourself some freeze misers and put on the hydrants. You'll find them at fine hardware stores, uh, farm and ranch stores, good nurseries. Uh, you can also check them out online at freezemiser.com. Not going to find them in the box stores, but quality independent merchants, the smart ones, all carry freeze misers. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster, News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. We're going to talk to Mike and Robert and Tim and E.T. And Mike is up first. Good morning, Mike. Morning. How you doing over there? <laughs> Off to a good start. Good morning to you, sir. Look, I've got an area in my yard that drains so well that I'm con- it dries out r- very quickly. And I'm trying, I'm wondering, I've got a, a porous limestone uh-huh. rock that I can put in a planter area that I want to keep the moisture in there more, can I put that down as a layer, like, you know, 12 inches below the finished grade? The limestone's not going to do you much good. It's going to seal up and plug up. Uh, If you could get some uh, lava, either lava sand or lava gravel, that is going to hold the moisture. It also helps in holding nutrients. Uh, if it's up toward the surface, it's actually hygroscopic. It sort of 
takes moisture out of the air and puts it into the soil. So uh, I don't think limestone is going to accomplish anything, but basaltic rock or lava is going to would be an excellent thing to use. Well, fantastic. I appreciate your information, and I love your show. Well, I appreciate the call, and uh, you don't hesitate to call any time we can be of help to you. Anything else I can do for you this morning? Uh, no, sir. That'll take care of it. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, you enjoy your day, and again, thanks for the call. All right. We're down to just a little over a minute before news time, so Robert, I don't want to rush you. You will be up first after the news. Gives me just a couple of minutes here to uh, remind everybody it's too early for pansies. If you see them in the box stores, don't buy them. It's too early. It's too hot. Same thing's true of cyclamen. But we are into a good time now for petunias, snapdragons, dianthus. Those things can go in just about any time. The little miniature pansies, Johnny Jump Ups, they'll be the first ones that it's okay to plant because they're a little more heat tolerant, but I sure would do it for another couple of weeks. Out there in the vegetable garden, great time on all your leafy vegetables except spinach. Still a little bit hot for the spinach, but if you're planting bok choy, if you're planting kale, if you're planting, uh, oh gosh, sorrel or arugula or (laughs) mustard greens or so many of the good things out there uh swiss chard all of these things perfect time to get them in the garden and growing well if you're going to plant if you got a big garden do it by seed it's a lot cheaper that way if you have a smaller garden Many of your nurseries can sell you plants to the individual varieties. Think about a seed package. You might not want an entire row filled up with one variety of lettuce, but uh, you can get the plants and have, you know, six different varieties out there. Also a good time for broccoli and cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, things like that. Uh, spinach is about the only thing it's too early on. It's time now for garlic. It's just an awful lot of things to do out there. And get this oil ready in the areas that you, even the ones that will be planted a little bit later. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right. Back to the last hour of gardening for this weekend here on KTSA Radio. Uh, Looks like we're going to talk to Robert and Tim and E.T. and Joyce. Robert's up first. Good morning, Robert. Good morning. How are you this fine day? I'm doing extremely well. Uh... Oh, it's just, it's, this is kind of weather we've been waiting for. If we just get some moisture, it'd be close to perfect. Well, I appreciate you bringing it back from Colorado. We're going to spend about <laughs> 10 days in Tennessee starting next Friday. I'll try to bring even better weather back from there with me. What part of Tennessee? Well, we're going to start in Memphis, go to Nashville, Gatlinburg, and depending on uh, time, may go over to North Carolina. Yeah, you see some beautiful country. I've spent my high school years, what there were of them, uh, just outside of Knoxville in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. So, yeah, I'm glad I don't live there anymore, but it sure is a pretty place to visit. Understood. Okay, problem I've never had before in a few decades of gardening. Uh, Start with cucumber plants, black droppings. They don't look like bugs. They look like teardrops droppings both sides of leaves extremely congregated around the flower buds Uh uh-huh i do have a couple little i mean less than a quarter of an inch orange and back black bugs on them Mm -hmm. Um, i don't know if there's enough of these to make all this mess but they've moved from and i'm talking about in the last 48 hours yeah Um, um 
do you see any damage to leaves or fruit, or is just this simply uh, kind of a not quite gelatinous, but uh, more of a almost almost a liquid, but uh, not quite there? Uh, you seeing anything anything beyond that? Are you seeing any chewing or any sign of damage? The leaves themselves don't look chewed, but the flower, the leaves, and the flowers themselves seem to be like stunted in growth all of a sudden. It doesn't look like they've been consumed. Yeah. It, it literally looks like they're shrinking up amongst themselves. I think you're you're basically looking at a stress issue that has been the result of the weather. Um, I probably would just, you know, wash this off with the cooler days. Uh, I think you're going to see that the plants are going to perk up and do markedly better. You the the big issue that we're seeing with a lot of uh, what we call cucurbits, which are cucumber squash, melons, things like that, is that we're not seeing real good pollination on the flowers. And for these things to successfully form a fruit, there has to be one grain of pollen land on the female part of the flower for every seed that would be in the cucumber or squash or whatever else. And the temperatures, the weather has to be right that this pollen grain can germinate and grow what's called a pollen tube all the way down through the top of the plant and into the developing fruit. And the weather has just been has worked against us this year. I'm hoping that we will sail have time in the fall to get some good production um, from these, you know, from the plants. But what you're what you're describing is more stress-related than insect-related, and uh, just this little change in weather is going to be the best thing that can happen for the plants. Okay, just, for, just for clarification, I've probably been harvesting, I've probably harvested about, this is two four-by-eight beds of cucumbers. I've harvested uh-huh. maybe 20 to 24 pounds of cucumbers so far. Mm-hmm. And just o- overnight, this is transferred to a squash bed, uh-huh. But I've been harvesting zucchini and yellow squash too for about oh probably ten days. Uh huh. So I'm getting production, or I had been. And this yep. it's, it's just bizarre. Like I say, in all the years of gardening, I've never quite I've never seen this. And I know this is a screwy year, so. And that's an understatement. Uh, it it yeah. just doesn't sound insect related, and okay. both squash and cucumbers are susceptible some to some viral issues, but they just don't have many disease problems. I just have to think it's stress stress related because we can rule out just about everything else. But this has been the year of real oddball stuff. I think with uh, with the reduction in just that intense daytime heat that we were getting, I think I think it's a temporary situation. I'd love to hear back from you in two or three weeks as the temperatures do moderate a little bit. Um, but it does not sound like anything that you really can treat for. Uh, I think you probably benefit from a foliar spray of, say, liquid seaweed or maybe with a little garret juice in there. Things would very definitely benefit from feeding. I would be using a water-soluble fertilizer like has to grow plant or their liquid fish blend. Um, but uh, hopefully, since the plants do look healthy, I think there's a good chance that they will revive to the point that you get more normal-sized fruit, flowers, and leaves. But uh, get back to me on it. I, we'll give it a uh, whirl. Yeah, I, again, there's not much to worry about. 
if you see the thing that we sometimes see happening with cucumbers when we do have this pollination issue is that the cucumber will start to develop and then all of a sudden it just shrivels down and makes a little rat tail and the first third of the cucumber looks normal and then it just shrinks up uh, that's not a physiological issue that is simply lack of pollination uh, apparently at this point you've got pretty good pollinators out there but if anything changes be prepared to do some hand pollinating with a little paintbrush to keep the production going Sounds good, Bob. Appreciate the info. It's always my pleasure. Appreciate the call this morning, Robert. Thank you, sir. (laughs) Goodbye. All right, Tim is next in line. Good morning, Tim. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Uh, I have a uh, timing issue that I want to resolve. I have uh, Prada Barbados and and, uh, plants from Mexican olives that have come up from seeds. Uh So best to transplant them now, uh, later in the fall. I'll wait till spring. Um, yeah, that's a tough question. Pride of Barbados, uh, how big are your little seedlings? Anywhere from small to about a pencil size. Okay. They are one of the hardest plants I know of to transplant. When you start digging down, they've got a weird root system, big old thick roots that spread way out. And the bigger they get, the less your chances are of being able to transplant them successfully. Uh, Problem is that we are getting pretty close to winter time. And who knows what winter is going to be in Texas this year. But you would like the plants to have a chance to become pretty well established before the cold weather really gets here. So my the, the best thing you could possibly do would be to dig them, put them in pots so that you can protect them through the winter months, and then just put them in their permanent homes, you know, come spring. Mexican olive, you could put off transplanting until spring if you wanted to. They're going to be very much easier to successfully transplant than, uh, than the Pride of Barbados are. But if it's an option, I'd dig them, put them in pots for the winter, um, if at all possible, and then replant them out in the spring. I can pretty much promise you on Pride of Barbados, if you wait till spring on those, you're only going to have probably 30 40% of them transplant successfully. So it's just kind of what is going to fit into your world. It's uh, The little ones, the ones, you know, that are down, oh, you know, where the, the whole plant is no more than 6, 8 inches tall, those are going to transplant pretty easily because, you know, one big broad shovel, one big scoop of soil, you're going to get most of the root system. Uh, problem is, uh, we never know when cold weather's coming. You might transplant them, and it might be January before we get a freeze and everything would be good. Or I've seen some pretty chilly weather get here by Halloween. So if you're going to transplant the little ones, be prepared to protect them this winter by covering them, mulching them heavily. Uh, if it's not practical to put them in pots and keep them that way through the winter months. Okay. These are all going to be giveaway plants, so I hate to oh, put okay. them in pots. Uh, so I was kind of wanting to get it all done at one time, uh, so that's why I've spring or fall. And so uh, anyhow, I think with the information you gave me, it gives me a good idea what what I want to do. Well, we'll you're going to have to give them to uh, dig them to give them away, so... Uh, why not do what a professional grower would do, and that would be to put them in a good pot, let them develop a healthy root system in that pot over the winter months, and then they'll be a, a much more thoughtful gift. Okay, well, that's true. Uh, that's an option. <laughs> Anyhow, appreciate your information and your program. Thank you much. I appreciate your call, Robert. Thank you, sir. All right, let me get a break done. Then Tim and E.T. and Joyce will be up. 
Uh, let me talk for a moment. Looks like I get to talk about uh, the Tank Depot once again. And, you know, Tank Depot, I've known those folks for many years and gotten tanks from them before. I'm glad they're back. Uh, let me talk about them officially on the show because they're a good company. Uh, they've grown. They still have their location here in San Antonio over in the corner of Rigsby and 410. But they now have locations in Dripping Springs and then Buda as well. And they're just your source for tanks. Whatever tanks you're looking for, maybe you're looking for a bait tank, open-top bait tank. Maybe you're looking for a chemical storage tank. Maybe you're looking for a septic tank. Or you're looking for a rainwater catchment tank. Tank Depot's going to be able to help you out. Bigger tanks, yes, they can deliver to you. Uh, they're just specializing in quality at very, very reasonable prices. Uh, the rainwater tanks, for instance, are high quality that allows absolutely no light inside, so you're not going to get the algae growth that can be such a problem. Uh, many of their tanks come with a 10-year warranty. Uh, it's just good people offering top quality, and uh, they, they're they here to serve you. Monday through Friday, they're open from, I believe it's from 8 till 5. Here in San Antonio, I'll give you that phone number. I don't have the numbers of the uh, other locations, but 210-648-3866. That's 648-3866. Ask for Candy if you call and tell her I told you to call. But if you're looking for a tank of any sort, don't settle for what you're seeing sitting outside the box stores. That's not the long-term quality you want. You want to visit the Tank Depot. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. Looks like it's going to be E.T. and Joyce and Joe. E.T. is up first. Good morning, E.T. Morning, Bob. How are you today? Good. How about yourself? Oh, I'm still kicking. That's a good thing. Okay, I got a question about diatomaceous earth. I use that for insect control, and I heard you mention that once it gets wet, but once it dries back out, is it still okay? If it dries back out and is, you know, is powdered, is, is very powdery, then it's okay. Because you have to understand how DE, diatomaceous earth, works. If you looked at it under a microscope, you would see that it's tiny little particles that have very sharp edges. And the way it controls insects, insects don't have blood vessels the way you and I do. They just have all their, their bodily liquids in something called a hemocele with that kind of crunchy shell around it. And when the, when the diatomaceous earth gets down in their joints, it just starts cutting and they literally dehydrate is, is what, the way it kills them. So when the diatomaceous earth gets wet, it clumps up and it can't get down in those joints and kill them the way that we want it to on the fire ants and the fleas and things like that. So um, once it gets wet, if it dries out and becomes very powdery again, it's certainly still good. But if it makes little clumps or clods or things like that, no, those are not going to do the job for the insect control. Now, we use it differently. We put it in animal feeds to control internal parasites, but uh, that that's a totally different process uh, in a cow or in a horse or something like that. The DT, uh, ET, I'm sorry, the, uh, the DE <laughs> yeah. between all these things, uh, the diatomaceous earth is an irritant and it causes the the intestine to make a mucus-like material that then just sweeps the parasites out of the insects. So it would still be okay. Uh, I, you know, I put it on cattle cubes and things like that. 
Uh, some of the dog food manufacturers actually put it in the feed. If that stuff gets wet, it's not really going to hurt that much. But where you're using it for insect control, it's got to be very, very finely powdered to, to control the insects. Does that make sense? Uh, it makes sense to me. I understand that. Okay, I got another question. I got a, a Mustang grapevine growing back behind the house. If uh-huh. I took cuttings off of it, can I stick them in containers? You can, but not this time of year. The best time to root your cuttings, and you want to root them in perlite, so you can't just take a cutting and stick it in a dirt of pot, or a pot of dirt. Our grandmothers might have been able to do that, but uh, I think it was something that their generation just did much better with. But the time to take your cuttings is just in the spring, as the old-timers say, when the sap's rising on the grape. At that point, you can take cuttings. High percentage of those should root for you. You can transfer them to containers and um, and have them to plant or share with friends. Okay. And I, this is probably more of a question for Louis Sirianni, but the gas for the lawnmower, I've got that non-ethanol gas, that expensive gas, and since uh-huh. it ain't rain, I ain't mowed the grass. Is that drug gas still be good? It's It loses some of its goodness, so to speak, but um, I can tell you I've had it in my lawnmowers and things like that, and... Uh, uh, thank goodness it doesn't have the ethanol because uh, that's what dissolves some of the plastics in the carburetors and causes so many problems. Uh, if if it's a real, you know, finely tuned, real high-powered engine, I probably would get some fresh. But I have to tell you, I've used it when it's two and three and four months old in my mowers and things, and they run just fine and uh, uh, have not had any maintenance issues. So. Um, I don't know about your uh, Ferrari sitting out there in the driveway, but in your lawnmower, it's probably going to be okay. Okay, and one last question. Well, this is information that I learned. I was watching information program, and they say like 90% of the containers, you know, uh, flower containers you buy at the nursery stores, they all end up in the in the in the landfill because they're more or less non-recyclable. Unfortunately, and I, you know, is my one real complaint about the recycling uh, companies, uh, they are recyclable. Most of the nursery containers certainly can be recycled, but the recycling companies won't accept them unless they're clean. And, you know, for us in the nursery business, I mean, our recycling dumpster is bigger than our regular dumpster. But uh, we get fined if anything goes into that dumpster that still has any dirt on the pot. So, unfortunately, most businesses can't take the time to thoroughly clean those pots to recycle them. So, um, it's, it's not a matter of the pots not being recyclable. It's a matter that the recycling companies won't accept them unless they're pretty darn clean. And most businesses don't have the time or manpower to scrub them down before they put them in the recycling bin. That's that's a wonderful thing to bring up. I mean, the city, because we try so hard, the city has named us a gold-level recycling uh, establishment here. But uh, And, and I'd like to say our recycling dumpster is bigger than our regular one, but unless we have time to clean the pots, we're not allowed to recycle them. Yeah, because they always mention that, that uh, the computer that reads the plastic it goes down the belt can't read the black, so it just keeps it on through and it don't pick them off the conveyor belt. Well, it's uh, there. Yeah, I remember the days when uh, they used to be making pots out of recycled tires, believe it or not. So um, if they wanted to solve that issue, they could, and we could be much more efficient in our recycling. 
but unfortunately the recycling companies in my opinion haven't stepped up to the plate on on those i i applaud them for what they do with some of the other plastics and we always have to remind our employees that on plastic bottles and things you need to take the caps off you've got to do your part but uh uh, nursery containers, um, they, they could do a lot better job than they do with them. Okay, and one time, earlier you had one call to talk about detentions in the ground. Could they be cicada killers? I heard that cicada killer will dig a hole, plant, you know, a bug or something there and put an egg on it and then be <laughs> Well, that's that's that is true, and the cicada killers uh, very definitely, along with the cicadas, uh, do do come out of the ground and leave a pretty substantial hole behind. So it could be it could be either one or the other. More likely, it's the cicada coming out that's leaving the hole. I want to back up to one thing on the nursery containers, et. What I yes, encourage people to do is to take them back to the nurseries. We give them back to our growers. That's what we do with uh, you know appropriate trays and pots and everything else. The ones that we don't have time to clean, we just take it back to our suppliers. And for the most part, they are happy to have the, the containers. And except for the little super thin ones, they can use them again. So um, I would encourage anybody with leftover, especially the ones for the bigger plants, don't throw them away. Take them back to the nurseries. Here at Shades of Green, we actually give them away. We not only give them back to our growers, but we have people come in, you know, several times a week looking for little pots. They can start their tomato seeds and things like that in. And uh, if we have them, we're happy to give them away. And I think most nurseries uh, do exactly the same thing. So I guess that's the most natural recycling. They're not melting them down or anything like that. We're just using them over and over until they fall apart. I know uh, we know some of our growers very well well and i think i recognize the same pot coming back through the nursery three or four times so uh we can do that form of recycling even though we can't put them in the city's recycling program yeah because i have access to two inch pots always a three foot across and three foot deep so yeah yep and uh i appreciate what you do but uh you know you can probably always find a friend or I uh, like to say many of the nurseries give them away. The bigger pots we just give back to our growers to grow the shrubs and bigger plants in them. So there are ways to recycle them. They just can't be through the city program. All right. Okay. So, uh, thank you very much, very much, Bob. You have a very pleasant day. You do too, E.T. Appreciate the call. Uh, let's go ahead and talk to Joyce. How's Joyce this morning? Joyce, Joyce is nothing but a big ball of woe this morning, but... Where there's life, there's hope, and I think there may be a spark of life, so I need the Webster and the Garden Girls to give me advice and encouragement. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know we are always here for you, so what is, uh, who is the patient and what are the symptoms? Okay, this is a uh, sweet kumquat, a muai kumquat in a pot. Uh-huh. It's totally my fault, but we don't need to go into why, just how to get out of it. And that is, I noticed that it was wilting a little bit more and needed more water, so I thought I was taking care of that, but I didn't really pay a lot of attention to it until I saw it. It didn't appear suddenly, but I thought it did. Anyway, <laughs> leaves all over the ground, shriveled leaves, fruit wilted and falling off, and when I gave it a thorough inspection, the dirt has been sifting out from the pot, so roots have been exposed, so it wasn't getting enough water, and uh, it it simply is dying from drought. Mm -hmm. And so uh, 
I'm going to, I wanted to tell you what I plan and then maybe you tell me what I can do right or wrong. I'm going to cut off all the fruit because a lot of it's falling off. The rest is shriveled. A lot of the green leaves have fallen off. The others are shriveled and barely hanging on. The top has brown areas of, uh, of, uh, limbs and things so what i was gonna do is cut the thing about a third out of the top where it was brown now it's a high graft on this thing and mm-hmm. there's some green limbs at uh, oh about the six seven inch level and then there's some space and there are a few more green limbs on one side so that's why i think there must be a little bit of life in there but uh-huh. i'm just wondering how much to really cut it back to give it a chance to whatever life is left in it after i put dirt in it and things uh to, to hopefully get it going again i would tell you that um you want to you any of the limbs or trunk that are brown and crispy looking go ahead and cut those off that's just like cutting your fingernails or cutting your hair you're just taking away dead tissue any green tissue that is there you want to leave it because even without leaves uh where the limbs are green they've got chlorophyll they're absorbing the sun's energy and that's what's keeping the plant alive they're you know producing the carbohydrates and things not as effectively as the leaves do but a young plant with soft green bark is actually carrying on some photosynthesis through the bark so let's don't get carried away with cutting it back now, when you look at those limbs that are green, is the surface shriveled or is it still smooth? The lower ones are smooth and, and look strong, and uh-huh. even up into the top somewhat on that. But uh, some of those green limbs have leaves still on them that are shriveled. Uh huh. And as I say, but I will cut all the fruit off because it looks bad all over. So yeah, I'll yeah. do that. Well, I I think there's a real good chance this this plant's going to come back for you, Joyce. But keep in mind that the roots have been damaged, so we've in effect got to give it a little IV fluids, as Doctor Kirby would say. And we do that just by spraying water. If you want to put a little has to grow in it, if you want to put a little super thrive in it, if you want to put a little garret juice in it, those are all good things. But while the roots are compromised and not effectively taking up a lot of this, because the roots you see are not what do the absorbing. They're little microscopic things called root hairs that actually do the absorbing, and those are, you know, those have had a tough time. So even if you water the roots constantly, uh, they're just not able to take up the nutrients as well. So you've got to give them directly through the bark in effect and that just means missing that thing with your nutrient solution or clear water but occasionally with the nutrients in it and you could do that two or three times a day if you wanted to now as far as regenerating the root system get it repotted properly get it in some good soil and the first time you watered at that point i'd very definitely put a little garret juice a little super thrive i'd really come up with a good cocktail of things for it but uh, water it as you normally would don't increase your watering frequency uh, at all just be sure when you water water very thoroughly but just be cognizant of the fact that it's going to take those roots a while to regrow and while they're trying to regrow you need to be feeding it through the leaves that are left and actually through the bark of the limbs that are left and don't expect to see a lot of change until next spring but i wouldn't be surprised if it comes out strong in the spring to the point that 
hardly even shows that it had a problem. Well, it seems to be on one side. One side seems to be a lot better and has a green than the other. So I recognize that that's probably where the roots were damaged most on the right. opposite. You know, on hey, you're side. exactly right. Exactly right. But with the uh, the leaves, the limbs that are green, some of them are quite long, and that mm-hmm. was the only thing that I was wondering whether they should be cut back slightly or anything at all, since they're maybe two and a half feet. You know, it's almost lopsided on that in that respect. So I didn't know maybe, if that mattered. Not really. Maybe in the spring we'll cut them back a little bit uh, when we can actually see some. When, when you start seeing new buds, and Mother Nature may, you know, may shorten the limbs naturally. That limb that's two feet long, when it decides to bud out in the spring, it may only, the buds may only extend one foot out. And at that point, you'll know you might as well cut the end off of it. But that's something we can't oh, okay. tell at this point. So okay. we've got, to, we've got to let the patient start to recover, and then we can think about pruning on it. But anything that's brown and crispy, yeah, that's just dead tissue. Go ahead and cut that away. Okay, okay, I will do that. And uh, as I say, it was all my fault, but then that doesn't matter why. <laughs> you know how that, that Well, as, as Dave Ramsey it's says, life happens. <laughs> life happens. Yeah, life happens. Well, I know you're busy, but I want to leave you on a positive note after all that stuff. A puppy dog was teaching a math class to other puppy dogs. And uh-huh. he stood up there and he said, two belly rubs plus two treats equals true love forever. So there you have it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I will tell you one worse thing that I saw on a T-shirt not related to our, our little fuzzy animals like this one that's over here wagging her tail and uh, rubbing against me right now. But uh, while we were in Colorado, we saw these two, uh, 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 actually a T-shirt as well as a poster, but these two bears are looking at the back of a car, and the owner of the car has done what some people do. They put those little stick figures, the mommy, the daddy, the little kids along the back of the window, and one bear looks at the other and says, oh, look, a menu. Oh, that's good. Good, good, good. Well, I'm glad we're ending on a positive note here. And so Absolutely. Thank you for your advice. Yes. I'll stay hopeful. I think you should, Joyce, and I know we'll talk again soon. Thank you so much. All right, you, uh, let's get a break out of the way here. We'll talk to Joe and move on down the list from there. I get to talk to you about Rhonda's Nature's Way. And one of the fun things we did on this little trip we took last week, and I'd never even heard of this before, but we went to a garden where they had a reflexology walk and it is just amazing what reflexology does for your body and that made me think i really ought to remind people that rhonda over at rhonda's nature's way she does reflexology at the north side store not with the rock walk the way that we experienced it up in uh, carbondale but if you've never experienced a reflexology session you really ought to schedule one with rhonda you, you just be amazed how how you will come out feeling reflexology yeah, i certainly can't in a, in a commercial tell you everything about reflexology but rhonda certainly can and it's one of the many many services that they offer they also do the light therapies at both stores 
and of course you know their products uh, the very best when it comes to supplements and vitamins things that can help you deal with digestive issues or mood issues or sleep issues Rhonda can help you you don't have to be running for some pharmaceutical medication that probably has side effects and uh, we were talking earlier about some of the things she has for allergy relief very very effective and can be so important because we're going to be coming into uh, a cedar season before very long at all plus she's got things to help you with your diet plans it's just a wonderful place to visit uh, Northside Store is there in the center at the corner of I-10 and Callahan, open Monday through Saturday. Southside Store is on Southwest Military. They are open Tuesday through Saturday, and just a wonderful place to help you live better naturally. Rhonda's Nature's Way. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster, News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening on a beautiful Sunday morning out there, warming up, but, you know, it does that every day. I'm just thankful for these wonderful, cool mornings we've been having lately. Ah, looks like we're going to talk to Joe and Barbara and Loretta in that order, and Joe is up first. Good morning, Joe. Uh, good morning, Bob. How are you doing? Off to uh, just a really nice day, so I'm doing well. How about yourself? Great, great. Uh, Bob, uh, I'm having a real problem with my lawn, as you can imagine, with all, all this heat. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> is. I know, so it's terrible. Is there any uh, anything you can tell me to uh, try to help it come back? Well, the single best thing or two best things that you'll do for any lawn um, you know, following a summer like this, number one is fertilize, and it's time to be putting on our fall fertilizer. Now, you don't go out and buy something special that says winterizer. You just use a good organic product like Medina or Nature's Creation or Maestro Grow, but fertilizing is very important. The thing that I think shows that, that turns things around most quickly is a thin layer of compost. So in addition to fertilizer, and I do the fertilizer first if you can, but where you can, get some good organic compost and put a quarter of an inch, half an inch thick over the turf, and that, I've seen it bring back things that I thought were dead. That top dressing with compost will, it won't make a big change this fall, but when things start to come back out next spring, you'll be amazed at how much better your lawn looks. So that, just give it that weekly watering, very thorough watering once a week, and uh, even the bad-looking lawns have a good chance to revive. But uh, that's what I hope to do with mine. That's what I recommend to people. Uh, fall fertilizer and uh, a top dressing of compost over the areas that look real bad. Okay, well, uh, my main concern is I've got a lot of areas that, that it's bare already, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, so and, uh, how can I, yeah. And what you can do and what I would recommend that you do just to cut down on erosion and things like that for the winter months is do what we call overseeding. Get some, uh, what I like best is a rye seed. I don't like the Oregon rye. I know it's the cheapest one, but it gets tall and just nasty in its growth, very hard to mow. But some of the uh, more compact ones, my favorite variety is Top Flight. Uh, Pantera is not a bad one. Greyhound's not a bad one. That's what you get from somewhere like Douglas King Seed. But overseed those areas, water them. You'll have nice green grass 
growing out there. It's not going to be your permanent grass, but with the drought the way it is, I'm not really recommending that you go out and buy and plant more sod at this point. When things start to come out in the spring, we can look and see, and if you have areas of your yard where you have good basic grass, then you can dig some little plugs out of that and plant into the bigger dead areas. Or you may just buy a few squares of grass and chop them up into smaller pieces and plant them in those bare areas. But I think it's going to be a waste of time to do it at this time of year. This time of year, I'd focus on the fertilizer and the compost uh, and perhaps overseeding. That's going to give you a beautiful green lawn for the winter. Uh, and then next spring, we can address getting more of your permanent grass back growing well. And how much of that comes back is going to be, you know, partly due to just what the weather does this winter. And there's absolutely no way I know of to predict that. So at this point, we do what we can to save the grass we have. We overseed so we have a little bit nicer look through the winter months. It'll help hold our soil in place. Then the parts that don't come back, we'll deal with that uh, late February, early March when it starts to green up again. Okay, and on the uh, on the bare areas, can I put uh, some of this compost or, or just yeah, feed? Yeah, yeah, but but I would I would maybe put some of your uh, winter grass, your overseeding down first, then put your compost uh -huh. on top. It's better to have the grass growing and then add compost than to add compost and then add the grass to it. Okay, great. Okay, and another thing, uh, cray myrtles. Uh, my cray myrtles took a beating this year because of the aphids. Yes, sir. So uh, what can I do to, are they, uh, will they come back? Uh, oh, yeah. I, yeah, I, the aph aphids are a nuisance, but they're not really life-threatening. Now, uh, as always, we want to be sure the root flares were exposed on the crepe myrtles, but uh, mm -hmm. just water and fertilizer is all your crepe myrtles need to get beyond the aphid issue. The aphids were just a temporary nuisance, and they ruined a lot of flowers, and they made the leaves look ugly but they didn't really hurt the plants uh, significantly. So water and fertilize them. Be sure that root flare is exposed, and they ought to come back strong next spring. Okay. Uh, on the aphid, uh, all the, uh, I've got different colors of uh, myrtles, those cream myrtles, uh -huh. and they only yeah. affected the white ones. Isn't that odd? I've had people tell me they only affected the red ones. I guess, oh, okay. <laughs> I guess, I guess the aphids just have their own individual preferences, and we actually have more than one kind of aphid out there causing issues this year. But uh, uh, if you still see them, probably all you need to do is just put your thumb over the end of the hose and just kind of blast them off because uh, uh, it, it, it kills them. The aphid's sitting there. It's got its jaws embedded in the leaf of the crepe myrtle. When that blast of water hits it, uh, the body of the aphid goes one way, but the jaws stay in the leaf. So it's the end of the aphid. Oh. Uh, you're not washing off the whole aphid. You're kind of tearing them in half and getting rid of half of them. So as much as I dislike aphids, that's that's kind of a happy thought. But uh, uh, I, you don't have to do any special spraying or anything like that at this point. Okay. Great. Okay, and one final thing is uh, I I bought some boxwoods and uh, mm -hmm. we were trying to decide where to where to put them and we never could and uh, it's been quite a while since uh, uh, since I thought about them and they're still in the pot. Is it too late to put them in the ground? No, sir. October and November are the two best months of the year uh, for planting shrubs like boxwood. So you're at the perfect season to do it. Do you know which variety of boxwood you purchased? Uh, no, not really. I don't think it's any. Well, no. look around and see or maybe ask somebody 
who knows boxwoods. If you got the one called Japanese boxwood, it has to grow in full sun. Uh, it's a wonderful plant once it gets established. Some in front of my house are probably 100 years old. Uh, they're beautiful, and I haven't watered them a single time this summer. But uh, Japanese boxwood's going to have to be in the sun. If you got the variety called Baby Jim, G-E-M, that one can actually grow in the shade as well as in the sun. So just remember, when you first plant them, they're going to have to have real regular watering, um, even though, you know, once they're established, they'll be very, very hardy. Uh, But if it's Japanese, be sure it's in full sun. If Baby Jim, you can plant it just about anywhere you want to. Japanese ultimately can grow six or eight feet tall. The Baby Jim's never going to get bigger than uh, two or three or four feet tall at the very most. So Baby Jim is a much more compact variety, and it is shade tolerant. So try to figure out which one you have, and then you'll put it in the place it'll be happiest. Yeah, I think I think it is Japanese. I remember seeing it. Yeah. And it well, would be in full sun anyway where we're, where we're going to Very, very good. It'll just uh, You can prune it to keep it smaller if you want, but if you don't want to prune it, it'll grow up and make a pretty good size hedge for you. Okay, great. Okay, Bob, thank you for the information. You're welcome, Joe. Thank you for the call this morning. Goodbye. All right, Greg, let's get our last break done so we can come back and visit with Barbara and Loretta. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening on what's starting out to be just a really beautiful day out there. Going to get a little warm this afternoon. Supposed to be cooling off a bit, but golly, the morning's been beautiful. Hope you've been out enjoying it. And uh, we'll get back to the phone lines. We're going to talk to Barbara and then Loretta. And Barbara is up first. Good morning, Barbara. Good morning. Hi. I'm out in the uh, Bulverde area. And uh, Very good. we, over a couple of summers, uh, we, we go away in the summer. We go up north and escape the heat for a while. <laughs> Lucky you. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes. But we have, we have really, truly lost all our grass. We're down to dirt. Um, and we have, oh, years ago we sodded. Then we went to seed. And now we just have dirt. Um, usually I would put down winter rye. And then that makes me happy until about the beginning of May or so when it starts to go away. But um, we need something a little more permanent. And uh, I'm wondering if I can seed with regular Bermuda, uh, just some any type of Bermuda, and also put winter rye down at the same time here this fall. Well, it's a great question, but you'd be uh, wasting your time to do both because while the winter rye loves cooler mornings and that's when it grows and flourishes, Bermuda will not germinate except in the heat. So uh, if you put out Bermuda seed, unless our weather took a turn back to super hot, it's not going to sprout until next year. And by that time, the bugs may have gotten it, the insects may have eaten it. So uh, I, I, and, and the same thing's true. Uh, you really, you just can't plant Bermuda seed unless you're going to be there to give it some moisture. Now, once it's up and growing, uh, it, it's pretty resilient. But if there is a window of time before you head for cooler weather, that's going to be the time to plant your Bermuda seed. If you want to have Bermuda now, unfortunately, the only thing you could do is buy the sod. And uh, yeah. I, I I don't know that I would go right now when our water supply is so uncertain. Uh, it's possible right. that we could go to a still a higher drought stage. We've got our water district meeting coming up in a couple of weeks and uh, uh, have to look real carefully because the water tables are absolutely plummeted 
throughout a lot of the area, and uh, I, I certainly hope we don't get there, but water restrictions may get even more severe, and I don't want you to waste your money on something you can't water. It's one thing to buy a few right. dollars worth of seed and then to have to let it go, but buy $1,000 worth of grass sod and then not be able to water, it's just not an acceptable condition. So. Yeah, I I would, and I'd certainly love having a green lawn in the winter, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to use enough water to keep that, that rye green through the winter months. But then in the spring, we're going to have to look and see. You may want to switch from Bermuda over to one of the native grasses that doesn't, you can't manicure it quite the way you can Bermuda grass, but they are certainly more resilient uh, and more likely to be looking good when you come back from that wonderful summer vacation. But that's going to be a discussion we ought to have about next February or March. For now, I'd think about overseeding and uh and just, you know, accept the fact that your yard doesn't look any worse than most everybody's this summer. But I I just really, I think you'd be wasting your money to put out Bermuda seed at this time. Okay. And then those native grasses uh, can go down, what, February, March, maybe? Yeah, something like that. You could put them now, but again, I'm just reluctant not knowing what the weather situation is going to be. Hopefully... Uh, we are going to move back into Enso neutral and then back more into a, a rainier period, but I'll believe it when I see it, and in the meantime, I'm going to be hedging my bet, so to speak. Okay. And so the native grasses like uh, like buffalo, I don't know, I'm not real impressed with buffalo. Is there one you would recommend in the spring? Actually, one of the best ones is a blend. Uh was developed uh, up at the Wildflower Research Center in Austin. It's called, um, oh, uh the name just flew out of my mind. Uh, it's a blend of actually three different, I believe it's called Habiturf is the name of it, H-A-B-I-T-U-R-F. It's a blend of three different native grasses. I think there's some curly mesquites and buffalo and uh, two or three different or three different ones in there. And uh, it's turned out to be really pretty successful. Uh, the folks at Native American Seed have their own blend up there. Douglas King uh, has the Habiturf, I know. And uh, that's that's what I'd be looking at. Okay. Okay. And uh, one more quick question for you, because I know you have one more caller waiting. Um, I have a, a, a rose, uh, some rose bushes, and, you know, they've been in for a long time. Not knockouts, but various varieties. One of them has, I've never noticed this happen any year before, it has these little bunches of red berries all over it. What could that be? Are you sure it's part of the rose and not a vine that's growing over the rose? <laughs> It seems to be part of the rose, but that wouldn't okay. make any sense. But well, that roses do form what we call rose hips. They make a little seed pod. They're very high in vitamin C. Uh, your health food nuts will uh, will be consuming them, and some varieties of roses make much more prominent hips than the others. But we also have kind of a nasty native vine called snail seed. And uh, it's got bright red berries all over it. So take a real close look and see which it is. If it's a snail seed, try to get rid of the berries. If it's the roses, encourage them. And you have a great day. Let me do move on to Loretta so we get her in before the end of the show. Thank you. Uh, good morning, Loretta. Hi. I'm embarrassed to ask you about this product. My daughter cleaned out her storeroom, and uh -huh. we found it says all-purpose liquid fertilizer, uh, natural solutions, shades of green 
How old is this? It cannot use it. It's in oh, a you, you can abs you can absolutely use it. It doesn't really go bad. It basically is just a slightly improved form of the Hestagro lawn formulation or Hestagro plant formulation. Uh, we used to package it, and it just got to be too much work. But it's still good. You still follow the directions and use it, and your plants will love you for it. Oh, okay. So the plants and the grass are just plants. You could use it on anything. It was developed more for pots, uh, everything from bedding okay. plants to, uh, you know, house plants, but it's certainly not going to hurt your grass. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. I figured it was all right, but I wanted to double check. And <laughs> one, more real, one more real quick thing. Uh, my fig tree lost all its leaves. Is that yep. normal? Is, is when it's it right just, now? When as dry as it is right now, yes, figs are dropping their leaves early. Typically, figs will lose all their leaves in the winter. It just is happening a little yeah. earlier. I would water it, even though it doesn't have leaves oh, on yeah. it. I would take your hose and spray over the limbs, uh, and this will help it come out better next spring. But uh, it's not dyed. That's just what happens when it gets dry and when we get to the end of the summer. And you have a wonderful okay. day.